Hi, I'm Zoe. And I'm Jen. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're continuing our Gen X rom-com series with a tale of lovers on the run from the mob. We'll discuss love at first sight and whether the love in this movie seems healthy. And we'll dig into our favorite films by one of the 90s most influential filmmakers, Quentin Tarantino, as we talk about True Romance, the 1993 movie made from his first screenplay. Zoe, welcome back. Thank you, Jen. Here to talk about another Christian Slater movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk about this one. I think I said before that it's my husband, Kurt's, uh, one of his favorite movies from this era. So it was nice to revisit it with him. Well, I'm excited to hear what you think about it then today. And um, if you want to tell a little bit about what Kurt thinks about it, too, if that's okay with him, that'd be interesting as well. Yeah, I might, yeah. I might interject. <laughs> okay, cool. Thoughts. Today we're going to be talking about the movie True Romance, and in True Romance, the lead characters fall in love very quickly and end up getting married within 24 hours of meeting each other. So I wanted to ask, and we could talk about what is like the fastest that you've ever fallen in love, and what's the fastest you could imagine falling in love and marrying another person, like that you could imagine possible for you? Oh my goodness. I think I fall in love pretty quickly. It, it doesn't happen super often or it hasn't happened super often. So like when I meet somebody that I have that connection with it, te- I tend to just know really quickly marrying another person. I feel like I can, I, like I feel very jaded and old answering that. Cause I feel like the faster you want to marry somebody, maybe, maybe the least, you know, less, less likely <laughs> you should marry somebody. But on the other hand, I don't know. I don't know. Me personally, it would, it would take a few months. Okay. Okay. Like six so, months to a year minimum. Okay. But just like you said, you fall in love pretty fast, but like, I want try to be specific here. I want to know like what in your memory, what do you think is like the fastest amount of time that you've fallen in love? Like, like instantly, well, like, so are you saying I, like at I the exact like, moment? I want to get really philosophical about like, what is love? And can <laughs> you actually, is it really love if you're falling in love that quickly? So I, that's why I have a hard time putting a number on that. Okay, well, philosophy aside, think about something tangible. Like you said you were in love with someone. How fast have you done that? Oh, how fast have I actually said it? Yeah, yeah. Months. I mean, it would take me months to say that. I wouldn't say that super fast. Okay. But that would probably be a self-censoring thing because I wouldn't want to be creepy. (laughs) Okay. Then when did you want to say it? I'm really going to try to pin you down on this. (laughs) it's It's been a long time. I don't... Uh, but then is it really love, Jen? I don't know. No, I don't know. Does it matter? Does it matter? I just want to like your own self perception is what matters here. I'll, I'm just gonna say it has never been a 24 hour situation. That's as much. Okay. That's as much detail as you're gonna get from me. Okay. Okay. I'll accept that. Okay. For me, so my first boyfriend, I think 
within a week, I felt like I was in love with him. I felt comfortable saying that. Um, mind you, we slept together the first day that we went out. I had known him for a little while longer, but like we slept together the first day we went on what I would call kind of a pseudo date. And then it took about a week where I was, and I was just like, oh, wait, I'm in love with him. And he actually said it to me first, I think, in that case. Um, and then my husband, um, Lee, like I pretty much instantly, like the day I met him, fell kind of madly in love with him. Um, I'd known him on live journal, like, like sharing really personal things and really philosophical things that we cared about, like for months. Mm. So I knew a about him. But like when I met him in person, it was like that day. And within a week, I'm pretty sure I knew I wanted to marry him. I I feel like your Lee story, those months of reading his thoughts on LiveJournal counts as months. It you know, yeah, I but I, I was never in love with him at that time, like at all. Like I never thought of him as like I even when I went to meet him, it wasn't the anticipation of meeting someone that I was like planning to fall in love with. It it was a type of knowing, you're right, and, and friendship, but like there was, there was no like, yeah, there was no anticipation of like, oh, I'm going to fall in love with this guy. Mm. Yeah. yeah I, don't, so I don't know. I don't know if I've ever had that anticipation either. It's like, it's either going to happen or it's not like I'm either into you or not. It's a, it's a switch for me. Yeah. There's no, maybe I could fall in love with this person. I don't, I've never felt that. Anyway, yeah, like the question of what is love is kind of a running theme through our podcast. I don't think we're we're going to settle it today, and I don't really think the characters in this movie are necessarily going to exemplify that. But I just kind of wanted to get your your take on like uh, th- these twenty four hour marriages. And you seem to say that like you said, the more if you want to marry someone quickly, it's a sign you shouldn't. I don't know if I would go that far. I think. Like plenty of people take a long time to get married to people they shouldn't get married to. (laughs) Sure. No, I I guess what I'm saying is like, okay, if not, let me rephrase that because it's not the wanting to within 24 hours that would worry me. It's the following through on it because I think that that's me, you know, like there's no harm in waiting and like sussing someone out just a little more, even if you end up being right and you do marry them and everything's wonderful. It's just, it's just a matter of like, judgment for me but so it just shows like the one it shows that people are rash and immature maybe and then that maybe those people are not ready to be married okay and they you know maybe they're maybe they are like i definitely think that 24 hour love is possible i'll just leave it at okay okay (laughs) that sounds really bad 24 hour love (laughs) (laughs) okay all right before we go too far afield Um, so today we're talking about true romance and before we get started with today's episode, just a few notes. First, we will have a spoiler free section at the beginning of the episode and we'll warn you before the spoilers begin. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is every rom-com podcast and blog. Our Instagram is at every rom-com and our Twitter handle is at every rom-com pod. Oh, and I forgot. I wanted to mention that I finally wrote another blog entry too. So for a while, the Every Rom-Com podcast and blog was a bit of a misnomer with only two blog articles, but now there are three blog articles and there's one up right now about what makes a Gen X rom-com. So go ahead and check that out as well. And as always, you can find the podcast and the blog at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. 
And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And now we're going to listen to the trailer for True Romance. And what I did is I got us the updated trailer for the, I believe, the Blu-ray release because the original theatrical trailer, not so great. So this time we get to listen to a good trailer. Tell me about yourself. What do you want to know? What do you do? I don't remember. Where are you from? I don't know. The uh, big question is, do you have a, do you have a fella? Yeah. Hello? Hello, baby. Clarence? I'm a married man, buddy. She's the sweetest thing you ever saw in your whole life. She seems very nice. I'm in big fucking trouble. My name is Vincent Cocotti. I work as consul for Mr. Blue Lou Boyle, the man your son stole from. Clarence and her girlfriend of his snatched my narcotics. I tailed it out of there. You don't know him. No, you don't know me. Not when it comes to shit like this. Oh, you got it. All worked out, don't you? Where's our coke? Where's Clarence? I'm gonna show you what I mean with a little demonstration. Man, I like this Clarence kid. This fucking guy's crazy. I think what you did... you to know that you can count on me to protect you so what do you think I, that's not a bad trailer i think i mean it gets all the the action parts of it for sure yeah the, the part the next part was kind of like this like more romantic sounding music and i think there were more scenes of clarence in alabama but they were all silent so you can't actually like hear okay. that yeah, i was so wondering the- where that music was going <laughs> It was going to be it was going to be more romantic there. But yeah, (laughs) there was no more dialogue, I don't think, until maybe the very end. So, yeah. So the basic information about this movie, um, True Romance was released in 1993. It was directed by Tony Scott and written by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. It stars Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette and a ridiculously star filled ensemble cast. Like we'll talk about that later. Yeah. When the when the credits were rolling, when I was rewatching it, I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot all these people are in there. But yeah, mm-hmm. get to later. So the basic premise is that Clarence, played by Christian Slater, is a clerk at a comic book shop, and he falls in love with Alabama, Patricia Arquette's character, a girl who's recently become a prostitute. And when Clarence goes to reclaim Alabama's items from her pimp, Violence ensues, and he accidentally walks out with a suitcase of cocaine instead of Alabama's belongings. So Clarence and Alabama run off to L.A., um, hoping to sell the cocaine and start a new life together. But they are trailed by the mafia. Yep. (laughs) Happens every day. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of stuff to know about this movie. Um, We're just kind of going to scratch the surface, really. The title, True Romance references uh, romance comic books, which was a genre of pulpy comics that ran from about 1946 to 1975. Uh, One of the first was called Young Romance, and it was created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, the same people who created Captain America. And the themes in the early romance comics could be kind of complex and adult and kind of thrilling, 
maybe not as much as this movie, but then they had to change to become a little more, um, I don't know, wholesome when the comics code came in in 1954. Uh, The title True Romance was not intended to be ironic, however. Tarantino says that when people ask him if he'd ever do a romantic story, he says, well, I did a romantic movie, True Romance. I feel very justified now in choosing this for every rom-com because I was like, well, this is the closest we're ever going to get to Quentin Tarantino making a rom-com. And I think in his own way, Quentin Tarantino thinks he's already made a rom-com. I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so parts of this story, True Romance, and parts of the script were taken from a early, partially lost short film that Tarantino made called My Best Friend's Birthday, which is available on YouTube and which I watched. It was not something I think I would recommend watching unless you're like a super Tarantino fan and you want to like see the evolution of his entire career. Or if you're like a filmmaker who feels like, like you'll never be able to make a good film, go and watch My Best Friend's Birthday. And you'll be like, if Quentin Tarantino started like that, there's hope for me too. Because it's it's kind of silly. But so there's some things taken from My Best Friend's Birthday, like the idea of paying for a prostitute for a friend's birthday, falling in love with a prostitute, the Elvis speech that we're going to talk about in a little bit, and the name Clarence for a character, among other things. There's a few small other small things. And when Tarantino was writing True Romance, he was also reading a lot of Elmore Leonard novels. So he cites that as an influence for the movie. Okay, then according to The Independent, Tarantino was paid $50,000 for True Romance, which he used to fund Reservoir Dogs. And but Tarantino, if Tarantino had made True Romance, though, he said he wanted like different lead actors, which I thought was interesting. Um, He viewed Clarence as his stand in character and he viewed Clarence as being a lot nerdier. He was thinking of actually Robert Carradine, who was one of the two main nerds in Revenge of the Nerds for Clarence. Have you seen Revenge of the Nerds, Zoe? I haven't, but I went and looked up Robert Carradine, mostly because I wanted to know if he was David's brother, which he is. Um, He is? He is. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And yeah, real, real nerd. It was hard. I I could picture him in the role of Clarence for a minute and it made me laugh. (laughs) Yeah. And then for, for Alabama, his original vision was actually Joan Cusack. So, and he had written this in like the sort of late eighties, like I think 87 is I believe the year he wrote it. So at that time, like Joan Cusack was like doing a lot of like teen movies, I think. But yeah, I could see that. I could see that it would be a very different tone, I think, though. But Tony Scott ended up choosing Christian Slater for the role of Clarence based on his role in Heather's, which we have previously covered in episode 30. And according to Tony Scott, Patricia Arquette and Christian Slater had like actual real life attraction towards each other during the filming. And Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette both confirmed this, too. And so their makeout scenes might be just a little more real than like what you'd see in other movies. Although Christian Slater was in a relationship while he was filming the movie. Um, Tony Scott changed the ending of Tarantino's script, which we'll talk about later. And he changed the story to be linear because originally it was going to be told non-linearly like Tarantino's other early films. Uh, True Romance was not a big success, maybe because the original trailer was terrible. I don't know. But um, it apparently made about $12.3 million on a $12.5 million budget. I've seen other sources that say slightly different, like gross to budget ratios, but they're all about the same, either making very little money or making no money. 
It did, however, kind of achieve a cult status. I know so many guys who say it's their favorite movie, not just Kurt. Or you said favorite or one of his favorites? I would say one of his favorites. I don't think it it would be number one, but maybe top 10. Okay, so... I'm interested. When did you first see the movie? Um, what did you think of it when you saw it? So I, I mentioned at the beginning that I saw it um, close to the beginning of my relationship with Kurt, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, we saw it together. Um, and I guess I forgot it all because when we watched it again, to prepare for this podcast, I barely remembered any of it. I certainly didn't remember most of the cast. I, I There were just like huge pieces of the plot that I didn't remember. So maybe I was just distracted from my own, you know, romance happening at the same time. But it didn't leave a huge impression on you, I, I take it. I mean, I I wouldn't say that. Like, I, I was like, oh, yeah, that movie was cool, violent, cool. But, you know, I just didn't remember any details at all. And were you aware of its connection when you watched it to Tarantino or like, did you just watch it like not knowing that? No, I knew, I knew he wrote it. Yeah. So, yeah. So you watched it in the context of his other movies and so forth. Like, how does it compare for you to like watching a movie that he directs? Uh, That's a good question. I feel like it has some Tarantino hallmarks. You know, the dialogue seems really obviously his but I don't think if I didn't know that it was a Tarantino written film, I don't know if I would just like guess that out of the blue. Okay. So for me, I saw this movie first after I'd seen Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Like Pulp Fiction is the first Tarantino film that I saw. I saw it in the movie theater in 1994 and I was blown away by it. And so immediately I was learning everything I could about Quentin Tarantino and I was seeking out his other work. So I first watched Reservoir Dogs because he also directed it. But then I went and watched um, True Romance and he'd also written the screenplay for Natural Born Killers, but Oliver Stone changed that pretty drastically. So True Romance is really the only other written product that like bears his kind of stamp. I think, I mean, I don't know it's really hard for me to like say whether I would know whether he had written it or not, you know, if I just saw it blank, yeah. but I feel like I might like at least strongly suspect because if it was like an imitator of Quentin Tarantino, it would have to be like the best imitator of Quentin Tarantino. There's just something about like, not just the kind of pop culture monologues in the movie, but like the, the rhythms of the speaking mm-hmm. and some of the outrageousness of it that I think it's kind of hard to imitate. Well, you know, that makes sense. Anyway, though, I was I, I remember really, really liking True Romance when it came out. And it was probably around the time that I was falling in love with that first boyfriend who I fell in love with very quickly and had this like whirlwind summer romance with. So I think the the love story in the movie made sense to me at that time in my life, being 17 and 18 years old, you know, and being really into Quentin Tarantino movies in general and just like, yeah. The, the cool factor combined with like feeling young romance and lust. I think this movie hit me really hard when I was younger. Um, in subsequent years, like I've still enjoyed it, but I was able to be a little more critical of some of it, some of the aspects of the movie, which we'll talk about later, especially kind of like how Alabama's character is portrayed. I think there is like our redeeming moments for her, but like, a lot of it, I just feel like the women are kind of throwaway characters in this, which I don't think is true of all Tarantino movies by any stretch of the imagination. I think he's made some great roles for women. But I think in his early first couple scripts, that wasn't necessarily as prominent. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward. Yeah, you know, we'll get into this later. But after watching it with Kurt, um, I was like, wow, I really do have some problems with this movie. And I'm I'm surprised <laughs> that I didn't remember it because there's a lot of things about it that I don't like, like actively just. OK, so we'll get there. OK, <laughs> nice. Nice. I'll enjoy the conversation. That'll be good. So we're going to now talk about the cast and crew. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Quentin Tarantino. I mean, honestly, you could make an entire podcast period about Quentin Tarantino. You could have a podcast where you just talked about Quentin Tarantino every week for a year and you would not run out of things to talk about. So this is not going to be exhaustive at all. But um, yeah, I'm a big fan of his work. I'm a big fan of like pretty much all his movies. So that's why we're, that's part of why we're covering him. We're also covering him because he's just essential to Gen X culture, I think, and Gen X movies. Uh, He was born in 1963, so he's not technically Gen X himself, but like most people will tell you that he is the most influential director of the 90s. I mean, it's not very controversial. Quentin Tarantino, despite being this like huge influential guy, was actually a high school dropout. And he's kind of famous for having worked at a video store called Video Archives for five years while he was working on breaking into film. True Romance was his first feature-length script. He wrote it in 1987, and he originally tried to get financing to direct it himself. He wasn't able to do that, so then he wrote Natural Born Killers, and he was hoping to make that himself. Failed again to get financing. Finally, he wrote Reservoir Dogs, and he wrote Reservoir Dogs with budget in mind. Like That's why it takes place in just so very few locations. So I thought that was very interesting. And then finally, like he was then able to sell True Romance which allowed him to direct Reservoir Dogs. And Reservoir Dogs ended up coming out first before True Romance in October 1992. So that kind of like launched True Romance's ability to be this big film with all these major actors in it. Okay, and then in 1994, Pulp Fiction came out and that was kind of the major event. Like before Pulp Fiction came out, like critics were definitely aware of Quentin Tarantino. Like he was in in their minds, like an up and coming, you know, director, but Pulp Fiction just kind of took over the public consciousness for a while. The experience of being a senior in high school and going to Pulp Fiction, I can't even describe. It was like, I'd always loved movies. I'd always been a film fan, but it was like being injected with this like super passion for movies all of a sudden it was like by seeing that movie i saw what movies could be and i saw that they could be something new and i people watch pulp fiction today and they don't understand that at all but at the time it was like a stylistic revolution like things that you take for granted in films today they come from pulp fiction (laughs) like we'll talk about that a little more too I don't know, like you probably did not see Pulp Fiction anywhere close to 1994, I'm guessing. No, I was, I was like nine in 1994. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I do remember the, the visuals from it though. Like I remember that poster of Uma Thurman. So like, I I feel, even though I didn't see Pulp Fiction in the nineties, I still like remember Pulp Fiction in the nineties, if that makes sense. Yeah. Just being part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been, of course, parodied too, and like imitated and yeah, it was all over and the soundtrack as well. So then after, since Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino's directed eight more feature films. He's directed other things too, but we'll just mention the feature films, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, Death Proof, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, despite all this output, he's only won two Oscars, and they were both for screenplay for Pulp Fiction and Django Unchained. 
But Pulp Fiction also won the Palme d'Or at Cannes when it came out. So yeah, not only was it revolutionary, it was recognized as excellent at Cannes. And recently, Tarantino also wrote a novelization of his movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really liked his novelization, actually. I think he could uh, also have a second career writing like strange, like sort of pseudo 1960s pulp novels. Hmm. <laughs> and Tarantino is also now the owner and head programmer for the new Beverly Cinema in L.A. And they only show film prints. And if I ever get back to Los Angeles, I'm so going there. It actually will probably be hard to pull me out of that movie theater if I ever get back to L.A. (laughs) So there was controversy like a few years ago about Quentin Tarantino in terms of like in Kill Bill, like Uma Thurman had talked about how she had performed a stunt driving thing that she didn't really want to perform, but Quentin had pressured her to do it. And then like some people were bringing forward other ideas that like Rose McGowan said that she had felt fetishized by him because of his foot fetish when he made some comments to her. And Diane Kruger did not say anything herself, but people were saying that Diane Kruger, the fact that he had actually, as the director, had used his own hands to strangle her in the scene where she strangled in Inglorious Bastards, that that was inappropriate. Diane Kruger subsequently said that she completely consented to that, had no problem with it, and Quentin Tarantino was a joy to work with. So, like, it was a very mixed bag of accusations. Some seemed, like, pretty legitimate and, like, worth considering, especially the stuff from Rose McGowan. But like the Diane Kruger thing, the people involved had no problem with it. And Uma Thurman has since walked back, like, you know, accusing Quentin Tarantino of being at fault. She's blaming more of the producers of the film for being at fault Mm -hmm. in that incident. And her daughter, importantly, with um, Ethan Hawke, actually worked in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't think Maya Hawke would have been working in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood if Uma Thurman thought Quentin Tarantino was unsafe to work with. So... Good point. But I am going to include both like some of the accusations in an article in the show notes, as well as some of the defenses in the articles in the show notes. And you can kind of make up your own mind about what you think about it. Like I said, we could do a whole podcast about Quentin Tarantino. I don't feel like we have time to go into it in this episode and do justice to the movie. Fair enough. But in terms of Quentin Tarantino's films, like I know we both watched a lot of them. Do you have like a top three that you like or ones that you don't like? So I have to I have to confess I have not seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood even though I really oh. want to. It's high oh, on it's my so list good. of movies I want to see. I've heard it's really great. Um, it's now in my top three. I believe it from what I've heard about it, and I haven't seen The Hateful Eight, but I've also been told that that one is skippable. So I just haven't um, made time for it. I definitely wouldn't call it skippable, but I think it probably would have fared better on the film print that it was made to be seen on. I think a lot of it is probably much more visually stunning and kind of a throwback to the way films used to be made if you saw it that way, but like most people didn't. So, Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't know. That's my theory. I would say my top three, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and Weird Pick, Kill Bill Volume 2, but I just, I like, I don't know, I like the the romance part of that one. <laughs> I like the I like Bill and the Bride. Okay, that is weird to me, but you know, I know. you do you. <laughs> you do. That relationship, I think, is less healthy than the one in this movie. Personally, oh, I know it's not healthy. I just have a crush on Bill. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, we don't have overlap. Like, I respect your picks because I like. I mean, I like all Tarantino's films, but like mine would be Reservoir Dogs. I think remains just such a well written movie with complex characters 
you can watch that movie 10 times and get 10 different ideas about it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in my top three. A lot of it is actually because of the dynamic that he brought out between Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, giving these great actors a chance to actually do their work in a film that like is deserving of them. So good. I also, I just really like the vintage feel of it too, though, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Inglorious Bastard used to be in my top three. And I always say that it's one of my top movies, but I haven't seen it in so long that I no longer think I can say it's one of my top three. You know, if I haven't seen, if I haven't felt compelled to see it, how can I say that? So I'm moving Death Proof into the top three. Because oh, wow. I will rewatch Death Proof and I'll get a lot of satisfaction out of it anytime I watch it. And I just love the way that it like takes the exploitation genre and both replicates it and makes it art at the same time and comments upon it. I think it has like actually very feminist elements to it. And you get to see Zoe Bell doing this amazing stunt work. And I think it really got was undervalued and underseen at the time. But you and I got to see it we sure did. in the theater with Planet Terror and all the fake movie previews for exploitation movies. That Thanksgiving. Rolled. White meat, dark meat, all will be carved. <laughs> yeah. I just remember you going around saying, I'm going to eat your brains and steal your knowledge all the, all the oh time. Oh my gosh, I haven't thought about that in so long. That's so funny. <laughs> so back to True Romance, the director was Tony Scott, who was a producer and director of other films. British-born, one of his brothers is Ridley Scott. He was mainly an action director, and his other movies included The Hunger, Top Gun, Days of Thunder, Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State, Man on Fire, the remake of The Taking of Pelham 123, and he died by suicide in 2012. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Um yeah, and I respect Tony Scott's work and his work on this film quite a bit. Um, I really like Top Gun. A lot of people don't like Top Gun. I don't know why. So Christian Slater is one of the main actors in this movie, but we have already covered him on every rom-com. In fact, we covered him just recently in episode 30 on Heathers. So if you want more information about him, please check out that episode. And Patricia Arquette is the other lead in True Romance. Her father was a minor actor, and all four of her siblings, including David and Rosanna Arquette, have also been actors. She had a difficult childhood. Her parents moved her and her siblings to a cult commune where they lived in poverty for a number of years. She had to deal with alcoholism and abuse from their parents. And at 14, she ran away from home to live with her sister in L.A. Her first IMDb credit was a lead role in 1987's Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. The best Nightmare on Elm Street movie. <laughs> it is, it is. I believe you. I've seen none of them. <laughs> <laughs> After that, she had mostly smaller roles in smaller movies until True Romance, including Prayer of the Roller Boys, Inside Monkey Zetterland, and a lead role as Maddie in Ethan Frome opposite Liam Neeson. I'm very intrigued by Inside Monkey Zetterland. I want to know what that's about. (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen it either, yeah. After True Romance, she worked with a lot of great directors and appeared in Ed Wood, directed by Tim Burton, Flirting with Disaster, directed by David O. Russell, David Lynch's Lost Highway, Bringing Out the Dead, directed by Martin Scorsese, Human Nature, written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michel Gondry, and Boyhood, directed by Richard Linklater. She's also starred or appeared in TV shows, including Medium, which ran from 2005 to 2011, 
Boardwalk Empire 2013 to 2014 and CSI Cyber 2015 through 2016. <laughs> that doesn't sound good to me, but yeah. No, People love CSI was, though. My mom is super into medium though. She loved that show. Oh yeah? yeah. Oh, cool. Um, recently she appeared in the Netflix movie Otherhood and the TV show Severance, and she's currently filming a series called High Desert. Okay, and as we mentioned, there are like so many other famous actors in this movie, so we're just going to list them out. Um, Dennis Hopper plays Clarence's father. Michael Rappaport plays Dick Ritchie, Clarence's friend. Val Kilmer appears as Elvis, which we'll explain later. Gary Oldman plays Drexel, Alabama's pimp. Brad Pitt plays Floyd, the stoner roommate. (laughs) Christopher Walken plays a mafia boss. James Gandolfini plays a mafia heavy. Chris Penn and Tom Sizemore play police detectives. Bronson Pinchot plays an assistant to a producer. Saul Rubinek plays the producer, Lee Donowitz. And Samuel L. Jackson appears very briefly as Big Don. So interestingly, Samuel L. Jackson and um, Christopher Walken will then both be in Pulp Fiction. So yeah, I don't think we need to explain too much about why True Romance is a Gen X film. I think Quentin Tarantino's association with it pretty much does it right away. In terms of the Quentin Tarantino involvement, there's so many references to pop culture in this movie, which is a big hallmark of Gen X film. You also have like a few characters who are kind of countercultural or slackers or artistic. And Brad Pitt is maybe like the ultimate slacker as Floyd, the stoner roommate. I don't think I've ever seen anyone lazier in a movie in my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's worth clarifying a little more beyond just my say so why Quentin Tarantino is like such a huge figure in Gen X film like some of the things he brought to film like in Pulp Fiction but also their seeds of it in True Romance include non-linear storytelling tonal shifts between humor and violence um, having gangster characters or other characters that are very multi-layered in unexpected ways, like they're not just talking about their like crime stuff, like to advance the plot. They're talking about their life, their philosophies. They're talking about movies. So this is something you'd see in all his films. And I think you see it a lot more today. And Tarantino also blends a lot of genres. And Phil Hode, writing in The Guardian, pointed out that Tarantino is one of the only directors from the Gen X era that actually has like a word in the dictionary named after Mm -hmm. him. Tarantino-esque. And the definition is referring to or reminiscent of the work of the American filmmaker and actor Quentin Tarantino, known for the violence and wit of his films. So Hode pointed out that there's only one other director from that period, again, the Coen brothers, that had their own word in the dictionary. And then um, just in the years immediately following Pulp Fiction, there were so many sort of copycat movies of Pulp Fiction that were around or people were just copying different devices or, you know, copying the pop culture references, copying the style, copying having these characters say unexpected things. Do you feel that Tarantino is influential or is this something you almost had to be seeing his movies at the time they they were released to appreciate? What do you think? I don't love Quentin Tarantino films the way that I used to, but I don't think it is possible to like overstate his influence. I totally, even though I didn't have that Pulp Fiction experience of like that you were describing of being in the theater and seeing something totally new and like having that sense that this was new Mm -hmm. and going to change everything. I still think that that's true. And I think even if you don't vibe with his content or style, per se, I still think that there's a freshness there that 
that is hard to deny, even if you don't like it. Okay, so let's get back to actual true romance then, um, which Quentin Tarantino did not direct. He just wrote. So let's see. Let's get to the opening of the movie. This is a very classic Tarantino opening where we just have an opening set piece, much shorter than some of his future set pieces, um, where Clarence is trying to pick up this like super retro-looking dyed blonde hair woman with a monologue about Elvis and Jailhouse Rock. So this is roughly his monologue. In Jailhouse Rock, he's everything Rockabilly's about. I mean, he is Rockabilly. Mean, surly, nasty, rude. He couldn't give a fuck about anything except rocking and rolling, living fast, dying young, and leaving a good-looking corpse. So he's he's given this monologue to this woman. And then, like, apropos of nothing, he just starts talking about how he would fuck Elvis. <laughs> but she she agrees. Well, she agrees that she would also fuck Elvis. Right. Yeah. So then, yeah. And then uh, that was so funny where he's like, oh, it's nice to meet people you have things in common with. <laughs> you get the impression because he uses this monologue again later that this is like his pickup gimmick for meeting women. Yes. And I, I, as a pickup gimmick, I feel like it kind of leaves something to be desired. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like how many women want to have a guy sit down in a bar and start doing a monologue about like what he thinks about a movie? I feel like when when he says that, like, it's good to meet people you have something in common with, that he actually does think he's getting somewhere with her. Yeah. Because then he invites her (laughs) to the Street Fighter triple feature. (laughs) Yeah, which she which she rejects. Yeah. Yeah. And we we go from Clarence's failure to pick up this blonde woman. She looks like she's like straight out of like a noir movie or something, too. She's got like like a fur on, I think, almost, doesn't she? I think so. Yeah. And she's like this super old fashioned, like bleach blonde hairstyle. Like, yeah. Anyway, we then go to the credit sequence. And wow, I didn't really notice until this time how bleakly Detroit is depicted in this movie. Like you just see these scenes of Detroit. It is gray. It is dark. It is cold. There's snow on the ground. Everything is grim. You see like people like warming their hands, like in one of those like garbage can fires. You see cars that have been totally hollowed out. Did you notice that? Like, I did not because I was too busy going like, oh, my gosh, he's in this movie and he's in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that this is kind of on purpose, though. They made it this bleak so that Clarence in Alabama, who are always wearing these bright clothes, like end up looking like very different than their surroundings. Like they don't belong there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we get narration over the beginning as well. Um, I can do it or you can do it. Do you want to do Alabama's or I would, I I would love to. So, so Alabama narrates over the beginning. I had to come all the way from the highways and byways of Tallahassee, Florida to Motor City, Detroit to find my true love. If you gave me a million years to ponder, I would never have guessed that true romance and Detroit would ever go together. And to this day, the events that followed all seem like a distant dream. But the dream was real and was to change our lives forever. So one thing I find interesting about this narration is that it kind of gives a subconscious sense of comfort that like the characters will be okay when you hear one of these at the beginning of a movie. That's true. Like it's talking about something that happened in the past. Like this movie still manages to be very tense, but like I think on a subconscious level, this narration like comforts you a little. Yeah. I don't know. Well, there's a, there's a, she goes on, but there's more narration too. And to mm-hmm. me, it gives me like a Badlands vibe. I even, I read online too that 
some of her words in in her little narration might be straight from Badlands. I I don't know that for sure, and I didn't I didn't like back that up, but I read that some people were saying that. But I but I got that vibe anyway, like before I read that. And in Badlands, the narration is you know kind of positive and sweet and dreamy, and you know it's like maybe a false sense of security. Hmm. Interesting. Where, I like, still she- I still need to see this movie. Oh yes, yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so um after the narration ends she pulls up a cab pulls up to a movie theater with the street fighter movies on the marquee and alabama gets out and okay i was gonna talk about this a little later but i want to talk about the street fighter movies right away so so the street fighter triple feature in this movie i had never watched any of these movies before this time for the podcast to decide if i'm gonna watch all of the three of these movies and I even watched an extra one that I didn't have to. So, um, <laughs> did Street you watch them all movie. in a row, triple feature? We try. We were gonna do that, but like we, were, I don't know, we're getting like old or something. Like we were just tired after work and stuff. We didn't want to watch three movies in one night. Like I miss being in my twenties when like watching three movies or even six movies in one night sounded like a really great time. But we did. We we did watch them all together, and we had pie after one of them. So we kind of did the movie thing. But um, th- I just want to tell a little bit about the Street Fighter movies because, like, everyone I've mentioned them to thought that they were, like, these bad 90s movies. And I'm like, no, no, no. I, I started getting a little clearancy even. I was like, no, no, these are with Sonny Chiba. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, he's a martial arts legend. And uh, he is really good in these movies. Um, they're, they were made in 1974. Um, the first two in the marathon were directed by Shigehiro Ozawa. And starring Sonny Chiba. Sister Street Fighter, which is the third one on the marquee, is a different director. I'm sorry, I forgot to write it down. But just a little bit about them. They're kind of exploitation martial arts movies. Like the martial arts are, are good and interesting, but like there's a lot of like ridiculous gore and silly costumes, and the plots are a little bit uh shaky from time to time. <laughs> I would say of the three movies, um, Return of the Street Fighter is the best one. Because the Street Fighter has, like, this subplot where, like, the main character, Sonny Chiba, like, sells a girl into prostitution because she can't pay his fee that she was supposed to pay him. And I was like, right away, I'm like, uh, I'm not so sure about that. And then I was thinking about Alabama, who's a prostitute watching that. And I'm like, really? She she would love that? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway. But, I mean, they are at the same time, though, the fighting is really cool. Sonny Chiba is obviously very talented, and they're fun to watch. Sister Street Fighter gets kind of silly. Um, there's some really ridiculous villains with crazy costumes, but it's got um, a woman star as well, Etsuko Shihomi, and Sonny Chiba plays more of a background role in that one. So it was they were all fun. I would totally recommend watching them if you like anything martial arts or like you know, kind of exploitation genre stuff. There are some, like, we were laughing so much, like, laughing at violence, like, is something that, like, Tarantino's kind of credited with his movies. The exploitation flicks that Tarantino grew up on, they were doing that first. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Tarantino always talks about how he watched all these types of movies. And you can really, like, when you watch these movies, you can see, like, some of the influence for Kill Bill and and his other movies in them. And we also I'm just going to put in that I also watched this is not in the triple feature. I understand why cuz like actual the third sequel to the Street Fighter movies would be um The Street Fighter's Last Revenge. Suffice to say there's a dude who walks around wearing like a mariachi outfit complete with the sombrero for the entire movie. You don't know why. <laughs> 
he doesn't appear to actually be Mexican, okay? Like, and he, but he's one of the villains, and he has to always wear the sombrero outfit. And also, there's a whole subplot in that movie where like everybody's paying like billions of yen for this like micro tape with some blackmail on it, and it never occurs to any of them that the guy could just make a copy of the tape. It's a whole thing, anyway. <laughs> See, that sounds like the kind of ridiculous movie that I have seen. I haven't I haven't seen these, but like I've seen a bunch of like weird old exploitation movies, you know, in, instead oh. of like all the good movies that I should have seen. Well, they these are beautiful movies. I just I just have to, they're all worth watching if you like this kind of thing, if you enjoy laughing at this kind of thing. So like they're all on YouTube, but some of the versions are in Japanese, some are in English. Please only watch the ones in Japanese. They're just much better. Like, I don't know what it, like, they they have subtitles too. So, yeah, and they're apparently available on Blu-ray as well. So I recommend checking them out if you're a Tarantino fan, if you like exploitation films, if you like martial arts films, pretty cool. And if I were younger, I would totally watch all three movies in a row and have a piece of pie. <laughs> So yeah, now that we've talked about yet another movie that's not true romance, <laughs> let's talk about um, Alabama comes into the movie where Clarence is already watching the Street Fighter movies. She is wearing this outfit, which is just like beyond. She's wearing like a leopard print coat with this ridiculously tight red dress with visible bra straps showing her like ample cleavage. She's got big red heart-shaped earrings, red lipstick and nails, and she's got like I think that's Patricia Arquette's natural hair, but it's quite blonde. She is like over the top, like the sexiest girl you can imagine almost. I don't know. My opinion. It's not my cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she she is she is like really beautiful and adorable in this movie, but it's not my it's not my favorite style of outfit. <laughs> There's a version of me who wants to dress exactly like her in this movie. Like there is, like, I will say every outfit she wears in this movie, I'm just like fascinated by it. And I'm like, I want to look like that. I want to be that. There's a part of me that like wants to be that archetype of the sexy girl. And maybe that like is part of a function of when I saw it when I was like 18 and I was kind of coming into my sexuality and everything. Although I was perfectly capable of dressing like that then and I didn't. So mm. who knows? Interesting. Anyway. I find it visually appealing. I find it interesting. Okay. So Alabama comes in in her like cute outfit. She dumps some popcorn on Clarence and then uses that as a pretext to come in and sit by him and start talking to him and flirting with him. After which they go to a diner and eat some pie. Yes. And Alabama says have- this is her tradition after movie to get some pie and talk about it. And so he, this is when he like brings up his Elvis monologue, you know, he yet again <laughs> moves in with that. <laughs> And then he asks her a series of questions, which I do have a clip of. So we're going to go ahead and play that clip of their night at the diner. Enough about the king. How about you? How about me what? Tell me. Tell me about yourself. What do you want to know? Well, for starters, uh, what do you do? Where are you from? What's your favorite color? Who's your favorite movie star? What kind of uh, music do you like? What do you turn on? your turn offs? The uh, big question is, do you have a, do you have a fella? <laughs> okay, ask me again, one by one. What do you do? I don't remember. Where are you from? I don't know. What's your favorite color? I don't know. Black. <laughs> well, who's your favorite movie star? Burt Reynolds. Uh, you want, you want to buy my pie? Yes, I would. A little one. All right. <laughs> Oop. <laughs> you all right? That's good. Mm-hmm. You like it? Mm-hmm. 
What kind of music you like? Bill Spector. Girl group stuff like he's a rebel. What are your, uh, what are your turn-offs? Mmm, Mickey Rock. Panda can appreciate the finer things in life, like sugar. Elvis' mm. <laughs> voice. Kung Fu, pot. Turn-offs? <laughs> Turn-offs. Mm -hmm. Persians. <laughs> Do you, uh, have a fella? Ask me that one a little bit later. In a theater full of empty seats, why... Why did you sit by me? Because you look like a nice guy. <laughs> Thought I had to dump my popcorn all over you. So before we move on from the scene, I just want to comment on like one of her answers. So Patricia Arquette told The Independent about true romance. There was a lot I liked about it, but I didn't like when Alabama was sort of racist. By now, we've all gotten used to Quentin's tone, but at the time, I was somewhat shocked by it. I was asking myself, what is this? Whoa. I don't know if the line about being turned off by Persians was in the script. Actually, every time we shot that scene, I would say a different ethnic group. I wanted to be equally offensive to all people. Yeah. Like, I didn't actually notice that. That It didn't stick out that much to me when in, like, 90, like, I must have seen it in, like, 95 or something. But, like, now it's just like, what? Her turnoffs are Persians? Like... My first, my first thought was that she meant cats. Like I, it did not occur to oh, me at first that, that she meant people. That's so sweet. That's so sweet. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I love that. I love that your mind is like that innocent to go there. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, because like, who would say, who would say it meaning people in a movie? Like I, that just, it just didn't even like register that that would be a thing that could be said for like a few minutes. And then I was like, Oh, Oh, she doesn't mean. <laughs> yeah. Like it's interesting to me. I think like, and we can talk about this more when we get to the Sicilian scene, the use of like characters saying things that are racist or behaving in ways that are considered racist in Tarantino movies. Like what we think about that. I think in a way, like these characters do seem realistic to me because there are people who will just say casually racist things and they exist in the world. And like, mm -hmm. in a way, it almost lends more of a reality to Alabama's character. I mean, she's not supposed to be like um, getting her undergraduate degree at Oberlin. She's supposed to be someone who's came from Florida and is now working as a prostitute. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And like, I mean, you know, who knows what what her what happened in her past that that would be her answer. Like, I mean, it, yeah, it is a realistic answer. So yeah, it's it it sort of grounds the movie in reality, even while it is kind of shocking and seems like sort of unnecessary. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um. So in the play, in the film's commentary track, uh, Tarantino says the questions Clarence asks Alabama are basically the Playboy centerfold questions, which I think is perfect because I've I've sort of now come to think of Alabama in my mind as you know how there's the manic pixie dream girl. For me, she's the manic pixie call girl. She's like the 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 she's yes. the fantasy of like what Tarantino would want. I think be, because like Clarence is like his self insert character. He said as much. Uh huh. And and to be fair to Tarantino, he did say in the commentary also that Alabama isn't actually his dream girl. Like that he prefers a woman who's like a little like more obviously intelligent. Like he didn't say that Alabama wasn't, but that she that wasn't what she led with is what he said in the commentary. The answer she gives, though, the pulp, the pop culture stuff she likes, I'm like, oh, that is so Tarantino. This is like Tarantino's dream of I'm sitting with a girl at a diner and she likes all the same stuff and she's so cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. And she's sexy. <laughs> like, so, but I wanted to, like, I thought it would be fun to, like, really quickly, rapid fire as we can, answer the questions from the diner. So, do you consent to this, Zoe? Can I ask you the questions? Sure, but I'm going to overthink turn ons and turn Don't overthink. I may, I Don't overthink. Pat. You're only allowed to say one, you're only allowed to say two things tops to each answer, okay? That's your rule. You can ask me first if you want. Okay. Okay. I'll go first. So what do you do? I work at the library and I run a podcast. Where are you from? Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. What's your favorite color? Cerulean blue. Ooh. Who's your favorite movie star? Um, Chris Evans, I guess. Like, I don't know. In like the same way that she says Burt Reynolds, where it's like, I'm not saying he's the best actor, but like, I like watching Chris Evans and things. So there you go. <laughs> What kind of music do you like? Oh, shit. This is hard. Um, I like to listen to a lot of movie soundtracks, and so I get my new mo- music off of movie soundtracks. So pretty eclectic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are your turn-ons? Thunderstorms. Um, swimming in lakes. What are your turn-offs? Rudeness. Um, to me or to other people. Nice. Okay. So then it's your turn. What do you do? I'm a homeschool mom and editor-in-chief. Okay. Where are you from? Greenville, South Carolina. What's your favorite color? Green. Who's your favorite movie star? Um, I don't know. Clarence has left the table. He's like, forget about this. <laughs> favorite? I, I know. Totally blanking on any movie star. Okay. All. Well, that's all right. If this were a realistic date situation, we'd move on to the next question. <laughs> what kind of music do you like? 60s and 70s rock. Let's see. What are your turn-ons? Intelligence, talking, the ocean. Oh, very good. What are your turn-offs? Stupidness. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We have, we've, we've successfully completed the Clarence in Alabama date discussion section. Although you notice she doesn't ask him any questions like that. This is very much like an, inter- almost like, I guess not an interrogation, it's curiosity. So yeah, he went, he goes from monologuing to asking questions. So that's good. I will yeah. say in my defense, she says, I don't know to a lot of them. So I would have just said, I don't know to my favorite movie star and he would not have left the table. She got away. Yeah. With it. I don't know because I think for Clarence movie star is more important than what do you do and where are you from? So I'm not sure, but well, that's okay. You I'm- probably don't want to, yeah, I'm, like, I'm not interested in Clarence anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. And also, Burt Reynolds is a pretty weird answer to begin with. So that's a very specific taste. Okay. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so let's see. Um, after this successful diner date, he takes her to the comic shop he works at and shows her Spider-Man number one, which I should have researched a little more about, but I did not. But she's, like, looking suitably impressed and looking up at him, like, you know, with with love Mm-hmm. And then they go back to his apartment, I think, or maybe it's also in the comic shop. I'm not sure. I think it's his apartment. Okay. And they have sex and it's very like like set to this like music lit with blue and black. Very like, you know, sexy, a sexy sex scene. It, you don't it, see too much. but Yes. It was a very long sex scene when it showed a lot of body hair of Christian Slater's body hair, actually. Oh, I guess so. Yeah, his his belly or something. I don't know. Yeah, like there. I mean, and like yeah, his back, his belly. There was there was a lot of body parts in this sex scene. I was like, I haven't seen a sex scene like this in a long time. I guess because I was like, whoa. 
Oh, okay. I've seen sex scenes more with more than, than this a lot. So I don't know. It didn't really strike me, but yeah. yeah. I mean, you watch a lot more rom-coms than I do. <laughs> rom-coms don't often have a lot of sex scenes, though. You find them in romantic dramas more, but like in rom- romantic comedies, a lot of them are quite chaste even. Yeah. So well, yeah, but yeah. You watch a lot more way. movies than I do. It's That's weird. true. That's true. But yeah, I just, I thought it was like quite, it was more than I was expecting. Was it displeasing in any way? Or like you say, the way you say it, it's like, I don't know about that Christian Slater body hair. I mean, maybe it was more than I wanted, actually. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Not to be rude. I was just like, wow, I I just don't need to see her licking him in that manner. (laughs) I'd rather imagine it. I don't know. Licking his belly, to, to, to be clear. Yes. So just so nobody gets the wrong idea. Okay. <laughs> okay, so after this scene, um, we see Clarence wakes up alone and Alabama is like outside sitting by a billboard crying and Detroit is just as bleak as ever. There's like nothing but freaking sirens and smoke and like, it looks terrible. It looks like a dystopian society. Yeah. And they have a discussion where Alabama confesses to Clarence that, like, she didn't just accidentally bump into him. His boss at the comic shop had paid her to, like, go and be his date at the movie theater and, like, probably have sex with him as well. And she's a prostitute. Or she calls herself a call girl, not a prostitute. She's very clear on calling herself a call girl. Yes. And um, different, she's you only- know. Yeah, she's only been a call girl for four days, and he is only her third customer in this case, however. And she then confesses additionally that she has fallen in love with him, and Clarence says he's in love with her too, and we cut from that to them getting married. And Clarence has got this red jacket that matches Alabama's red dress. They're very, they're always matching. Oh, yeah. A lot of, like, a lot of red, a lot of animal print matching yeah but 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 even when he, they switched colors later they, they're still wearing the same colors it's mm. interesting like i checked like every scene they're in they're wearing similar colors to each other it's interesting and they also get matching cupid tattoos with each other's names which okay getting married is one thing getting a tattoo within 24 hours <laughs> <laughs> yeah like these can be annulled tattoos yeah. are a little harder Remove. Yeah. These days getting married, like you can get divorced, you can get it annulled, right? But like like a tattoo, yeah, that's that's a lot of expense and trouble. Yeah. Have you do you have any tattoos? I don't have any. I do. I have I have one on on my back. And it's like is one that you still like having or I you know, I got it when I was eighteen. I don't I don't think about it much because I don't see it. I wouldn't put it in the category of regret, but like I don't know if I could go back and change it. I probably wouldn't get it. You know, yeah. it's like a, like a Celtic looking dragon thing. Well, yeah. These tattoos with somebody's name with a heart and Cupid would probably be more. Um, you think about it <laughs> if you, if your life took a different turn. Okay. So now we come to um, Elvis enters the movie. So Clarence is like hearing about Alabama's pimp Drexel and Alabama's left all her stuff at Drexel's and apparently Drexel's gotten rough with some of the girls and and Clarence just can't deal with the fact that Drexel exists. It's not really like so much that Drexel is an act of risk to Alabama. I don't think it's just that he can't deal with Drexel existing. What do you, what sense do you get from it? Do you feel like Drexel is a threat? No, no, I definitely think that he's, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's jealousy. I don't know if he wants to like show off to her. I have a really, I have a hard time, like, with his motivation for for taking this action to go see Drexel, honestly. 
Yeah. So he's like, we see him in a bathroom, I think. And Elvis is there. Like you never really see the Elvis character kind of like in a mirror, kind of behind him, standing behind him, played by Val Kilmer. You see like a gold jacket and some Elvis gestures. And Elvis is kind of like egging him on to go see Drexel and like that he could even kill Drexel. Yeah. And like, to me, it just seems like it is some kind of weird toxic masculine. Pr- I hate to overuse the term toxic masculinity, but if there is toxic masculinity, this is part of it. Like this like sense of like jealousy and pride, like outweighing safety and consideration, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, also, I don't know, like in Heather's, we talked about how there's like some surreal elements to the movie that kind of just add to the the feeling of it. But this it sticks out a little more as like, what is this Elvis thing? Is it supposed to be real? Is it like mental illness to be talking to your imagined Elvis telling you to go kill someone? Like that's really troubling. Yeah. I think there's only two instances of Elvis showing up in the film, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. That's my memory too. Yeah. Yeah. And so like that makes it a little less prominent and something you can kind of forget about as you've moved on to the next scene. At least that's how it worked for me. I'm just like, oh, that was weird, but now we're doing something else. Like, this movie just moves so fast that I never have time to, like, stop and think, like, well, what about that? I think my, in my mind, Elvis, like, Clarence knows that Elvis isn't real, but, like, Elvis is a device that Clarence uses in his life to, like, try to figure out his life, figure out what's going on. Maybe, like, the way, like, another religious person would talk to God, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Elvis is his religion in a way. Elvis is his like he's in the movie credits. He's actually listed as the mentor because they weren't sure if they were going to run afoul of like legal things with using Elvis's name. So I think yeah, it's kind of a mentor, a father figure for Clarence. But like I believe that Clarence knows Elvis isn't real. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you might tell Alabama, oh, I was just talking to Elvis or something. <laughs> but if you, I don't know, if you have like this mentor in your mind that's telling you to go kill somebody, I feel like you know that's worth a second thought. Yeah. So we get to the Drexel scene now, and we'd already seen Drexel um, in a different scene where he just shoots some of his crime associates. So we know that Drexel's dangerous. We know that he'll just shoot people. What was your impression of Drexel as a character? So, yeah, Drexel is played by Gary Oldman, who appears to be having like the time of his life playing this character. I think he's having (laughs) so much fun. Yeah. Drexel's a he's a white guy who's trying to sound and appear black. He's got like strange, like a strange, like milky eye. And apparently he borrowed the eyepiece from Bram Stoker's Dracula. I really enjoy the Drexel scene when Clarence comes in and they're having this whole conversation about like where Drexel's trying to analyze Clarence's fear by like analyzing his actions, and then Clarence kind of counters. Yeah, Clarence comes in and like Drexel's, I agree, it's awesome. Drexel's kind of like saying, like, I could tell that you're scared by the way you came in because you weren't watching the movie and you weren't eating an egg roll when I offered. You're just looking at me. And like, I don't understand what Clarence was hoping to get out of this situation, honestly. Like he comes in and apparently he already has an envelope with with nothing in it prepared to hand to Drexel and say, this is like, I'm going to pay you off. This is how much my peace of mind is worth. And so he already knows this thing's empty. There's no money in it. Like, why is he going there to antagonize a pimp? How does that make any sense? Yeah, I don't, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a <laughs> flaw, I think. It's not just like a Clarence's wacky character. I think it's like an issue with the movie, but that's okay. Oh, a flaw with the movie? Or yeah. like, I, I read it. I don't think Tarantino would be that 
like careless in his scripting. I I think, but I think he wrote a character who like has way more bravado than what he should, you know, than is good for him. I see him like, I see him as like Tarantino in a way. Cause like, that's what Tarantino said, but like that he's a guy who's watched too many movies and he's gotten his idea of how guys should act from the movies. And he was just at these street fighter movies where guys are always doing like ridiculous ridiculous things that they think are brave but are probably kind of foolish and Mm -hmm. now he's doing the same thing he's like replicating this movie behavior and he thinks it's going to turn out like it isn't a movie you know what i mean and i mean it does but like almost doesn't right like drexel launches at him and beats him and he's got his like other guy beating him too and like gets clarence's id and then he's like oh, this is your address and I bet Alabama's there too. And then you send somebody, he's going to send somebody to go get Alabama. And only because Clarence brought this gun and they think that he's dead already and they haven't found the gun, is he able to defeat Drexel? Like he could have been beaten to death right then and there. Yeah, I don't understand why they didn't just shoot him and just be done with it. Yeah, that's true too. They could have just shot him like they shot the other guys. But like um, they kind of leave him beaten up and left for dead almost on the ground. But Clarence pulls out a gun and shoots Drexel in the dick because, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And then he he shoots him again in the head. And at this point, like Drexel's like on the floor and he's got his hands in front of his face. Why doesn't Drexel grab the gun then? Honestly, I don't know. Is it was it just too traumatic to have his dick shot off? I guess. Maybe. Anyway, this could have easily gone south. Like this could have been the end of the movie right here. Alabama is brought back into prostitution. Clarence is dead. End of movie. But Clarence like survives and he ends up getting, he ends up taking a suitcase out of there and he ends up killing like the henchman and Drexel so that he thinks he's gotten away. He heads back to his apartment, grabbing some hamburgers on the way. And when he gets back, uh, he tells Alabama that he killed Drexel. She starts crying. And so then he immediately gets super jealous. Like, oh, you love him. You're upset that he's dead. And then she says, know what you did was so romantic and that's why she's yeah. crying yeah she says it through tears she's like what you did what you did was so romantic <laughs> so weird. it's so weird and i guess patricia arquette thought it was weird too she um said in an interview i had a hard time with the scene where clarence tells me he's killed drexel and i say what you did was so romantic i couldn't jump to that reaction my acting coach and i came up with the idea that here's a man I barely know who killed someone and is eating a burger. He could kill me next. As a female, the way to stay safe is to be in a love bubble. Part of her does think it's romantic, like kill all the mistakes I ever made. And I'm like, I love that that's how she came to that reaction. Cause like, it is like ridiculous. Like why, is, why would you be like, Oh, you just killed someone so romantic. It seems very extreme. Right. And well, and, and his, with his reaction being so like, Oh my God, I'm so starving. This is a great hamburger. I just committed a murder. Like that's terrifying. (laughs) He's not even, he's not even like distraught that he's just like murdered some people, you know? I mean, to be fair, Drexel's kind of a shitty guy, but (laughs) he's pretty shitty, but yeah, it's just like the act would probably be kind of like stressful. You would think. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Is this Clarence's first murder? We don't know. Probably. Well, that's true. I guess we don't know. We don't know much about Clarence or Alabama's past, but I would say he's not murdered someone before because I think the sheer stupidity with which he went into Drexel's place and the sheer luck, the way which he survived. Yeah, I agree. I think that we're probably supposed to think that too, but I feel like 
I couldn't be nonchalant about it. Just, you know, chowing down on a hamburger, even if it was a someone who made You know me. what, though? Now that I think about it, maybe I could be nonchalant because you might be in shock. You know what uh, I mean? When you're in shock, you do weird shit. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. And I can kind of jump to like her thinking it's romantic, too. Like if she's like, I kind of wonder if Alabama to me, like my background info for Alabama, my headcanon about her is that like she has known only like kind of macho aggressive dudes in her life. And like maybe some of them were like way less pleasant than Clarence. So when a guy is being macho and aggressive, like on her behalf rather than against her, that seems romantic to her. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's how I could see her. Yeah. That totally makes sense. I mean, this, this whole sequence though, where like Drexel says that, you know, Oh, you're her husband. That means we must be related which implies that they were in a relationship, at least a physical relationship. It just makes me wonder, like, what the heck is Alabama's story? Like, what, why, why, why with Drexel? Why the call girl thing? Why so new to it? I just have so many questions and so much interest about her that we we never learn. I mean, Drexel could be full of shit, too. Like, he could be saying that to piss him off. But yeah. Anyway, goodbye, Drexel. We we knew you for a very short time. (laughs) Okay. So let's see. Um, then after this, they go. To, they're going to escape from Detroit because obviously Clarence has just killed people. And they go to see Clarence's dad, played by Dennis Hopper, who apparently used to be in the police force and now is like some kind of private security. And Clarence's dad just like basically calls him on his shit. Like apparently he hasn't been to visit his dad in like three years, and he's so he's like, "What are you doing? You show up after three years. Like you're you're married and you killed somebody. Basically, like, are you crazy?" They end up getting money from Clarence's dad enough to like get to LA and try to get their deal done, which he doesn't know anything about the cocaine. Like they don't tell Dennis Hopper about the cocaine. They just say they want to go on a honeymoon. Yeah. And I guess they do tell him that they're in trouble, right? With the law. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because of Drexel. But yeah. Yeah. They they leave out the cocaine part. Yeah. (laughs) And oh yeah, we didn't even mention the cocaine. Sorry. Um, When, when Clarence gets back from the, the, pimp killing we it is revealed that he has accidentally brought home a suitcase of cocaine there you go not alabama's clothes yeah oh which is i love that in the costume design they actually reflect that too because you see her wearing still her leopard coat but then she's wearing like men's clothes under it in that in the scene with um clarence's dad before they have the money oh i didn't notice that yeah i noticed it this time i was like oh cool that's a good that's good continuity Yeah. yeah okay the weirdest thing in the scene though is like when alabama goes to like kiss Clarence's dad goodbye and she like kisses him on the mouth a bit longer than I mean I would not kiss my father-in-law in in the mouth in the first place but like this is like longer than necessary like what is that yeah it's a full-on it's a full-on kiss kiss weird it's weird yeah like like what is that and like Clarence had told his dad when they were alone she like she isn't she a peach she even tastes like a peach and like when they're leaving as they're leaving Dennis Hopper's like she really does taste like a peach. Weird. Weird. Just weird. <laughs> okay, yeah, we all agree on that. Okay, now we're going to move out of Detroit into LA. We get a phone call to Dick Ritchie, played by Michael Rappaport, and Clarence is in a phone booth, probably in the desert somewhere in Nevada or something, and he calls up Dick on the phone and he greets him with, Hello, baby, from like Chantilly Lace by the Big Bopper. Quentin Tarantino does the same thing. He calls somebody in my best friend's birthday and does the hello baby too. Oh, that's funny. And as soon as he says that, um, Dick Ritchie's like, Clarence, like it's Clarence's thing. 
And I, the other thing I love about this scene is that Dick Ritchie's apartment is so miserable and, and, and minimum wage looking. I'm like, that is a real apartment. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. He's just like lying around, like maybe in his boxer shorts, like like with a fan on looking kind of miserable and, and everything looks kind of messy. Yeah. I'm like, respect. So they're telling Dick that they're on the way and Clarence like puts Alabama on the phone and she's kind of like sweet and cute with Dick and they start having sex in the phone booth while Alabama's still on the phone with him. And they're like, just go check your mail. You know, just, just go read the letter. We'll be there soon. And, and like Dick doesn't like actually hear them having sex, but he's just kind of like left, like they they drop the phone and Dick's kind of like hanging on the line. Like, hello, hello. (laughs) Yeah. Alabama and Clarence are kind of like selfish and oblivious, like to other people throughout this movie. They're just constantly making out with each other in front of other people, like during discussions that is realistic, I will grant. Other people were not a concern to me when I was with my first boyfriend, okay? Like, I went through a bad period there where I was just, like, spending way too much time with him, making out with him all the time. People were annoyed with us. So, I mean, it is realistic. It's just, um, it's more annoying to watch film characters behaving like that, probably, than to be <laughs> like that yourself. When you're like that yourself, you don't care. Yeah. I have to say that this is more more my style of of sex scene. I think this one's way hotter than than all the oh, body hair. Okay, why is that? <laughs> I don't. I like the sex in the phone booth thing, and I like that we don't have to see so much of it. So you like? Do you like the idea of having sex in a phone booth, or is it just because you don't have to see Christian Slater's body hair? No, I like the idea of having sex in a phone booth. It made me okay. sad for the demise of phone booths <laughs> and how he like stands on the phone books. Love that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love her outfit in this section. Um, She's changing like outside the phone booths, like beginning of the scene. She's changing into this like polka dot shirt off the shoulder shirt with an aqua bra or like turquoise colored bra underneath it. And this like cow print skirt. I'm not as big at the cow print skirt, but I like how they have like prints throughout. And then she's got these matching like kind of aquamarine shoes and sunglasses. And again, aqua heart shaped earrings. And it's it's an adorable outfit, and it matches Clarence's aqua shirt. So I'm just big on Alabama fashion. I can't even choose whether I like Veronica Sawyer fashion or Alabama whirly fashion more. Wow, I'm just trying to th- I'm trying to imagine like which one I would actually be more likely to wear. Probably Veronica. And let's talk a little bit about Dick Ritchie, his friend that he's going to visit in L.A. What do you what do you think of his character? Without getting into spoilers. I just like Dick Ritchie. He just, he's just a genuine dude, right? Like he, we meet him, he's this struggling actor. We see his audition for TJ Hooker and it's like, (laughs) it's so short and it's so bad. And it's just like, he really feels like he had done a good job. And he like, the lady's like, yeah, great job. Good. You know, you're a great actor. We'll call you. And he's like, oh yeah, I got this good feedback, you know? And it's like, oh my gosh, Dick Ritchie, you know, I just feel for you, man. Yeah. He's a sweet guy. He tries hard. Yes, he does. Yeah. And then he's got his like useless stoner roommate, Floyd, played by Brad Pitt. Quentin Tarantino said he based Floyd off of like a bunch of just random roommates he had that seemed to just like have sunk into the couch and never leave and just watch TV all the time. He didn't specify whether they were stoners, but like, I don't know, maybe stoner optional. And uh, one more thing I love in this movie, I didn't notice like Detroit is pictured as very grim. And you would almost expect then L.A. to be pictured as this beautiful fantasy land, like all colorful. But really, they don't. 
even when they're entering into LA, it's kind of got a washed out, like smoggy feel to it. And I feel like that's deliberate. I feel like you're not supposed to think that this specific place is a dream, but that Clarence and Alabama together are the dream with their bright colors. What do you think of that notion? Um, yeah, I like I like that. I hadn't thought about it, but I'm I'm digging it. And now we come to the most controversial scene from this movie. It might be one of the most controversial scenes in any Tarantino written movie, um, which is called either the Walken Hopper scene for Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper or the Sicilian scene. We're not going to clip it. Okay. Cause it has like a fair amount of offensive language. I just want to say before you describe it though, that Christopher Walken in this scene, he looks embalmed. Like he's just like the perfection <laughs> Christopher Walken. Like if you like Christopher Walken, I feel like this is just like an iconic moment. And he just like has this like evil, smooth perfection to him. It's just great. Oh, I 100% agree. I think this is for both Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper is one of the finest examples of their acting you will see anywhere on film. So in this scene, Christopher Walken is playing a mob kind of enforcer, and he's got a bunch of guys with him, other mobsters, and they come after Clarence's dad. They tell Clarence's dad that about what Clarence did. They kind of make it sound as if Clarence went in there on purpose and massacred everybody and took drugs on purpose, which maybe from their viewpoint, that is what happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They don't know that Clarence just kind of happened into this situation. This is another scene where it's recognizably Tarantino, where there's just this like very tense scene that takes place over a while and the tension keeps ramping up and you know, something bad's going to happen, but you don't know when or what. I mean, there's like mild torture. Yeah. They're trying to get information out of Clarence's dad and he kind of plays dumb. They cut his hand, they pour alcohol over it. And this is where like, Dennis Hopper realizes he's going to die. So he asks for a cigarette or cigar that was offered to him before. Is this a Chesterfield, a cigarette, a cigar? I don't know. It's a cigarette. Okay. A cigarette that was offered to him before. And then he begins telling a story. And this is where the controversial part comes in. He knows that the mobsters are Sicilian. And so he tells him there's something interesting about Sicilians. And did you know that Sicilians are part black? except he uses the N-word in this scene to talk about this, okay? And he's going over this historical story about how the Moors invaded Sicily and that they were fucking each other, and that's why today Sicilians look different than other Italians. And the implication here is that he's meaning to offend this mob boss. Like, he's trying to piss off this mob boss, that it's bad to be part Black. So it's not only using, like, the N-word, like, racist language, but it's like, He's trying to offend him with the idea of being black. Mm -hmm. And when I first saw the movie back when it came out, I think I tried to sort of like forgive this in a way by being like, well, maybe Dennis Hopper's character's intent was to piss the mob guy off so he would get killed faster. And maybe that still is his intent. But then like I remembered back to another part of this movie when I watched it recently. He has a dog named Rommel. Dennis Hopper's dad does. Rommel's yeah. like a German general. And I'm like, what if like this character is actually just supposed to actually be racist? You know what I mean? Yeah. I noticed and that about an his dog this time. That that stood out to me. Yeah. And he's antagonizing this mob boss with racism, but he himself is also racist. I'm like, hmm. And like, that goes back to with Alabama. It's like, yes, I think it's realistic for certain characters in the world to be racist. Cause like, we're always talking about how America has a racism problem, right? So that implies that there are racist people who exist out there. And then that the question becomes like, should we exhibit these types of characters on film? I kind of think that 
we do not, not we should, but not just we can, but like, I think that that's, there's, I, I think it's, there's nothing bad or good about it. It's like, it's part of reality. And sometimes that's part of your film. And I don't think it has to be over thought. Like it's uncomfortable. We can talk about that. Yeah. We can talk about how, you know, we don't, we can talk about it, but I think that it does have a feeling of realism. This is a dude who's like living in a trailer right next to a train track in Detroit, Michigan, who's like a private security guy. Like that might just be who he is, you know? Yeah. Just to like wrap the scene up, it does have the intended effect of like the mobster kills him, but then they end up finding Dick Ritchie's address on his refrigerator anyway. So Clarence is still in trouble, but um, just a little bit more commentary about this. This is something that Tarantino has been criticized about extensively and there was also criticism from around that time period. Um, there's a movie line article by Joshua Mooney from 1994. And he, I guess, talked to some black filmmakers, Alan and Albert Hughes. They said, we love Quentin Tarantino, but he's got to stop using that N word shit. That is straight up racist. Mm-hmm. But there's also been like defenders of it. I mean, Dennis Hopper defends it. I think like, you know, it probably means less coming from like, you know, a white actor, but he says, Was I worried about the racial overtones? Not really, because it's factual. Quentin writes like people speak. He doesn't have to be PC. I think more influentially, perhaps, though, Samuel L. Jackson and Jamie Foxx, who have both been in Tarantino films, have both defended Tarantino's use of the N-word. This came up a lot around Django Unchained, which Jamie Foxx starred in. Um, But Samuel L. Jackson said, You take 12 Years a Slave, which is supposedly made by an auteur. Steve McQueen is very different than Quentin. When you have a song that says the N-word in it 300 times, nobody says shit. So it's okay for Steve McQueen to use the N-word because he's artistically attacking the system and the way people think and feel. But Quentin is just doing it to just strike the blackboard with his nails? That's not true. There's no dishonesty in anything that Quentin writes or how people talk, feel, or speak in his movies. So I do agree, you know, with Samuel L. Jackson. I think that, like, there is a heft to the villains in Quentin Tarantino's movies a believability to them, like an evil to them that you don't find in movies where the mob bosses act in a more professional or cleaned up language kind of a way, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. like if I see a villain or a a character, like a racist character in a movie, like Django Unchained, like Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Django Unchained, and they're not using the N word when they're beating slaves and having slaves, like, it seems unrealistic to me. It seems like, well, this guy like is already treating people in such a dehumanized way. And he's using this nice language. Or if I see like mob bosses, like never say anything that's not politically correct. That just doesn't seem like the truth of the world to me. Right. So I think it like adds something to the believability of these universes. I would also like to point out that like women are called terrible names like whores and the C word and bitch all the time indiscriminately. There's not a lot of discussion about trigger warnings about that. I feel like we have to allow art to exist that maybe some people don't approve of. You know what I mean? And like, don't watch that movie. I think that there are times when maybe Tarantino could have dealt with some of these topics more sensitively in his movies, but he at the same time is inspired by exploitation films, which have never been sensitive. It's just really complex. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree that I think that's, that's what I was trying to get at with what I was saying about how like we can talk about it, but the realism factor, I, I buy that argument. And, and I think that it's okay to have art that is uncomfortable and challenging and maybe that we don't like, maybe that goes places yeah. we don't want it to go. 
also, it's very interesting to me that in our country, we're so much more concerned about language sometimes than we are about like depictions of rape, sexual violence, yeah. actual violence. Yes. I think there's a lot bigger argument to be made that like violent rape scenes could cause real life rape than there is to that use of like the N word is going to cause everybody to go around saying it in daily life. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to pick on the language of the characters in a movie like this that is so violent, not with sexual violence, but it's so violent. It's like, okay, well, isn't that a concern? Like if we're going to like clean everything up here, I don't know. I had that thought. Feel free to write us at feedback at everyromcom.com if you have any thoughts about this issue. I might have a chance to mention it on a future episode. So please let us know what you think. And I think there's a lot of room for disagreement on this topic. Okay, so other than the controversy involved in this scene, though, I now watch this scene and I'm like, great, Clarence, like you've already gotten your dad killed. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like his bad decisions almost got Alabama brought back into prostitution. And now his dad is dead because of his bad decisions. If he just stayed the fuck home, this would not have happened. Good point. After this, like they, the mobsters have found the address we know, but it cuts to Clarence in Alabama driving into LA to Aerosmith's song, The Other Side, which by the way, I love that song when it came out in the 90s. I didn't love it then, but I loved hearing it when I was watching this movie again. Cause Did you? Yeah, I missed the 90s. A lot of things from the 90s that I would not have liked then, I like now. Yeah, I thought that was such a great song. I don't know why. Anyway, so now we're getting into the Hollywood section of the movie. We already introduced Dick Ritchie. Clarence in Alabama show Dick Ritchie the coke. He is initially incredibly like skeptical about this plan that Dick's going to help them sell this cocaine, as would I be if I were Dick Ritchie. But Dick does think of then one guy that he knows that might be able to help him sell this cocaine. This is like a lot of cocaine. Apparently, it's like supposed to be like $500,000 worth of cocaine, and they're going to try to sell it for $200,000. Or, so or maybe Dick, more because it's uncut, and he talks later about turning it into a million dollars. So it's a lot. It's a whole suitcase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dick eventually admits that he has a friend named Elliot, who is an assistant to the producer Lee Donowitz. And they start getting this deal organized um, where Elliot talks to Lee Donowitz and you see Lee Donowitz at first on a car phone driving down the road, which in the 90s, if you were on like a phone in your car, that was like kind of a sim- signal that you were kind of a jerk or like a, a superficial person. Right. And I mean, it was it was like attached. It was like one of those ones that was in his car, right? It wasn't like yeah. a like a portable one. I I mean, it just seemed that's like a, you would have to be a movie producer type dude to like have a phone in your car at that point. So they convince like, you know, Dick to help them arrange this deal. They go to the amusement park. Elliot is played by Bronson Pinchot, who used to be on the show. Perfect strangers. (laughs) Like I only know him from the show. Perfect strangers in this movie. That's it. Which is kind of funny because he played like Balky on that show. And have you ever seen that show? No. It is a totally different character. That's why it's like hilarious. Okay. Anyway, um, they go to this amusement park. They're getting the deal done. They go on a roller coaster. Apparently a couple of the actors hated roller coasters. I think Mike, uh, I think Michael Rappaport was one of them. And I think Bronson Pinchot as well hated roller coasters. The character of Elliot really seems to hate the roller coaster too. It's implied that he like throws up. I think Elliot is supposed to be like this character that they're trying to claim that he's less masculine than the other guys, you know, in the way that they portray him. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
like I, I think I took that kind of posturing for granted in the 90s. And now I'm kind of like, dude, like, that's kind of weak. Just because a guy doesn't like all this like dude bro stuff doesn't mean there's something wrong with him. Also, like, he, is a roller coaster dude bro stuff? Like, sometimes you just get know. sick to your stomach riding a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, no, you got to be a man and be really happy on the roller coaster, Zoe. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, they, they're they at the amusement park, though, and Clarence, like, kind of takes the phone from Elliot, gets on the phone with Lee Donowitz himself, and starts telling him about how they have to make a deal for Dr. Zhivago, which is what he calls the cocaine. And, like, Clarence's character here, he's such a fast-talking kind of, like, bullshitter kind of guy. He's, like, lying about where the cocaine came from, saying it was, like, a friend of his was a cop who got it from the evidence room. I think, like, that's what you're supposed to think Alabama finds cool about him. I just find it kind of annoying now when I watch it. Did you find it cool or annoying or just indifferent? Fairly indifferent. I, I don't, you know, I'm not annoyed by him. I guess I I think that Lee Donowitz is impressed. So I yeah. think it has that that effect. Yeah, he has the effect of impressing Lee Donowitz, which to me now seems very improbable. To me it feels like why would this like fast talking guy like charm everybody so much? But maybe that's a reflection of Tarantino too. He's himself a fast talking mm. guy. Maybe he had the experience of charming people in his life. I don't know, yeah. with that sort of attitude. So Tony Scott designed the Hollywood producer character, Lee Donowitz, to be like real-life producer Joel Silver. Joel Silver did produced films like Die Hard, Predator, and The Matrix. And then I looked at Wikipedia, and according to Wikipedia, Joel Silver is known for his, quote, eccentric temper, and he's been parodied in other movies, too, including Tom Cruise's character in Tropic Thunder. So I don't know if you've seen Tropic Thunder, but that is a hilarious character. And I find it hilarious that everybody's just like, parodying the same film producer all the time that like nobody in the audience is going to get right because they don't know hollywood producers right like our our archetype of a hollywood producer is actually this one guy (laughs) (laughs) yeah basically so they make the deal they've successfully made the deal they're going to meet at this hotel and now it's time to talk a little bit about my favorite character in the movie brad pitt's stoner character floyd this is what's happening with in Floyd's world while we are at the amusement park. Floyd is um, being greeted by Virgil, who is one of the mob characters we have previously seen. Hi. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. You dick? No. Dick Richie? No, he's not here right now. You live here? Yes, I do. He is sort of uh, roommates? Exactly, roommates. Yeah, well, maybe you can help me. I'm looking for a friend of mine. Clarence Worley from Detroit. He's traveling with a real pretty girl named Alabama. Yeah, man, I know him. They've been by here. You seen them? Mm Mm-hmm. They staying here? No, they're staying at the Safari Motor Motel Inn. Safari Motel. Safari Motel? Yep. How do you know that? I mean, have you been over there? No. Well, they were here, and they said that they were going to go there. And they went. Yeah? Yeah, Safari, Safari Motel. Safari Motel. Uh-huh. Hey, you want to watch some TV or something? They might be back here. No, no, thank you. Thank you. Then. Okay. All right, you take care. I might be back. Yeah. Okay, be cool. You kind of send me, man. Okay, I want to say that this scene is 10 times more hilarious when you see Brad Pitt because like so much of his acting is in the face and the body. 
but yeah. But I was really hoping that was the clip you were going to play because I, I love it. And and I, I think what does carry over re- perfectly well in the audio is like how his, when he answers questions, his timing is off and it, it is to hilarious effect. <laughs> yeah. And I love the part, con send me, man. Fucking kill you. <laughs> This is, of course, after um, Virgil has left. So Tarantino was talking in the commentary to the movie, too, that like Brad Pitt's character, Floyd, basically steals the show in the third act of the movie because he would watch it with audiences. And every time Floyd came on, people would laugh. But like every additional time he came on, they laughed more and more. And like, yeah, I love, too, that like he's this mobster is like a dangerous guy. But Floyd like seems to be in no danger from him just because he's so stoned. You know what I right. mean? right. Like he's too stoned to be like antagonistic or not to be completely agreeable. He's just like chilling. Don't condescend me, man. (laughs) I also think it's extra funny that he's like, I'll kill you because like of all the people in this movie, you know, maybe, maybe one of the only ones that doesn't kill someone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And is definitely the least capable of doing so. Maybe if he got off the weed for a while, maybe he'd be like, you know, who knows? But yeah, pretty, pretty awesome. We'll talk about Floyd a little more later. But right now, the spoiler section is going to begin. Yes. So actually, we could talk about we're, we're going to do spoilers now. So we can talk about it. What else happens to Floyd? Do you want to just keep going with Floyd? Sure. Yeah. So after this encounter with Virgil, which he never tells them about, by the way, he never tells like Dick or like Clarence or Alabama, the, oh, there was this guy here looking for you. Right. <laughs> and like, maybe he forgot. I don't know. He's always just watching TV and getting stoned. But there's another scene later on where like even more mob guys come in. And this time they're not like all polite and shit. They all come in with guns. And he is so stoned out of his mind. He just like freaking laughs at them, like in that kind of stoner way. Yeah, he's like, he's got this like honey bear, like bong or whatever that he's crafted there. He even offers them, he's like, you guys want to smoke a bowl? (laughs) Yeah, and then they like um, cock their gun. Like, what do they do with their guns? They do the thing where their guns that says they're prepared to shoot them. And he's like, oh, oh, okay. But but he's never looked scared the whole scene. Right. He just like very agreeably tells them like, oh, this is how you get to the place where the people are. He's like, you go right and you drive. And you drive. And the mobsters are just looking at him meanwhile, like, like, what is this guy? Who is this guy? Like, do you think that Floyd survives the movie? Do you think the mobsters kill Floyd when they leave? Or do you think they just leave him alone? I never thought about it. I, in my mind, he's still there on that couch. Living. Yeah. <laughs> like, half of me thinks that. And I certainly want to believe that Floyd has survived this entire movie through the power of pot. But... <laughs> I don't know. Those mobsters, they seemed pretty kind of also simultaneously disgusted with him. And like, maybe they wouldn't want any witnesses. But then again, how good of a witness could Floyd be? Right. It just seems better to keep, you know, keep it clean. If yeah. they if they kill Floyd, that could be that could be a problem. Yeah. They don't have to deal with. Yeah, they don't want the cops on their asses. They're on their way to the real meat. Yeah. OK. OK. I think Floyd survives. Good. Yay, yeah. Floyd is alive. <laughs> Floyd forever. <laughs> And I love Floyd. Like there's the one line that I quote from this movie. Nobody ever knows it except for other Floyd fans. But there's this point where like Dick and like Alabama and Clarence are all leaving the apartment and Floyd kind of shouts after them after they've gone. They can't hear him at all. He's like, get some beer and some (laughs) cleaning products. Some cleaning products. Yes. That's like the, yeah, that's when they leave for the last time. I think. 
Yeah, like, dude, I don't know why, but, like, I still say that line quite often. Like, sometimes, like, if Lee goes to the store for something, I'll just be like, get some beer and some cleaning products. <laughs> I just, yeah, I want to know what what does he have in mind? What's he going to clean? Just, just yeah, right? So mysteries about all these characters and their inner workings. <laughs> like, And also, like, that might not even be Tarantino dialogue, too, because there's, like, been... Pretty. There've been a few sources that said that Brad Pitt improvised a lot of Floyd's dialogue. So for all we know, he improvised that one. <laughs> my favorite line. He might have improvised the "Condescend to me, man." Who knows? I, think I, I don't know. He, I think I read that that one in particular was a Brad Pitt. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. <laughs> well done, Brad Pitt. Like people don't realize what a great character actor Brad Pitt is. Sometimes, like this work is really good. Twelve Monkeys is really good. Like his role in that. Like he's. He's awesome. So, yeah. I agree. Big Brad Pitt fan. Maybe cool. he's my favorite well, movie star. Oh, man. Then you got to see Once Upon a Time. So, yeah. I know. You got There's no reason you. that I haven't. There's none. It's inexcusable. Well, it's all right. I'll excuse you. <laughs> okay. So, now we get to kind of my favorite scene in the movie, actually, which is weird. Oh, Alabama's scene? Yeah. Okay. You oh. introduce it. I, I have a hard time with this scene. Okay, so we come to a scene now where, like, Clarence has gone off. I don't remember what he's doing in the scene, but, like, they're back at the hotel. He's getting hamburgers again. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's always getting hamburgers. So Alabama goes back to the hotel room. Meanwhile, Floyd is told Virgil where Alabama and Clarence are. So Virgil is waiting in the hotel room with a gun in his lap. And Alabama does this thing where she just, like, walks in and giggles and, like, She's, I guess what she's doing is trying to pretend to be innocent. Like she's not having anything to do with a crime, but like, to be honest, if you were just like an innocent person and there was a guy with a gun in your room, you would fucking scream and run out of the room. Yeah. You wouldn't be like, ha ha ha, hi there. Like I'm Alabama Whirly. Like, well, she doesn't say her name obviously, but you know what I mean? She's like, hi there. Like my husband will be back real soon. You would get out. Right. Right. Like, so by pretending to be innocent, she's actually giving herself away a little bit here. Good point. Her and, but, um, too is like, my husband plays football. He's at practice. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's like the worst possible excuse you could come up with. It's so, yeah. I mean, maybe she's just really that dumb. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could also be, again, I'm going to give people a lot of credit for being in shock because like being confronted with violence can be quite shocking. Yeah. And while Clarence Fair. has dealt with violence previously in the movie, Alabama has not necessarily dealt with it. I mean, maybe there was stuff going on at Drexel's that she had to see. I don't know. So like the Virgil guy is like, really thinks that she's very pretty and he doesn't, I don't think wants to slap her in the face directly. So he has her spin around, punches her in the face where he can't look at her. You can clearly see that this is not what he wants to be doing, but it's also his job. You know, he's gotten used to his job Mm -hmm. and he starts beating Alabama up, trying to get information out of her about where the Coke is. I think he'd probably kill her no matter what, whether she gave it up or not. But like, I think I would have given up the Coke if I were her. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's a really, that's a really good point. Maybe she just knew. I I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's like, once you're in it, it's like, you don't want to give up one thing. Cause then I don't know. That's really hard to say. So like, she's not really defending Clarence's life at this point because she can't really give away his exact position. But she's like, when it becomes obvious, he knows that she's got the coke. Like, I don't really see what the point is in being defiant. Like, other than like, maybe this is Clarence's dream. But anyway, Tarantino 
calls this the most romantic scene in the movie, okay? The reason he gives is that Alabama isn't giving up any information and she's willing to die for Clarence. And I'm like, wow. Like, I don't know. That's like what he's calling romance. What do you think about this This but thought? See, his dad does the same thing. So, I mean, is, so is that... This gets into the whole, like, philosophical question of, like, what is love and what is romance? Because I have wondered, like, do I really understand what romance is? You know, like, I, I have a hard time defining it separate from lust, I guess. Like, what is romance? What is love? If this is romance, um, I feel confused by <laughs> I guess it's like a sense, I guess I could say, like, maybe it is the quality of loyalty in this case and protecting someone. Like, maybe that's what Tarantino was getting at with this comment. I can't say for sure because I'm not uh-huh. him, but I guess that could be an aspect of love is loyalty. But um, I think I I mean I think that like I think that's important to a point, right? Like I, I can admire that and respect that. And I, I want I would want somebody who really loved me to not like give me up. But but again, you're you're right that she's not protecting anything super valuable. Yeah. She's just protecting the information that the Coke is under the bed, right? I mean, it is super valuable in a materialistic sense, like, right? Like, I can understand, like, you want that money, but it's like, it's your money more important or is your life more important? So, yeah. Okay, I want to, I want to, before we get too deep into this, though, I do want to talk about why this is actually one of my favorite scenes, though. Okay. So this is the scene, I feel like, where Alabama comes into, like, being more than a ditzy kind of a character, more than just like a loving, adoring kind of a character with a great fashion sense, in my opinion. But she becomes like kind of a badass. So at first, she's just getting beaten up pretty badly by Virgil, who is played by James Gandolfini, who is a much bigger person than she is. And he can kind of basically throw her around. But when she is like lying on the ground, seemingly like just going to be lying there until she dies, she finds this like corkscrew, this kind of like portable tiny corkscrew. And she kind of picks it up and James Gandolfini is like, oh yeah, go ahead. I'll give you a free shot. And like, he's kind of feeling pity and humor at the same time about this. But she, instead of aiming it at his chest where he's pointing, aims it at his foot really hard, unexpectedly, catches him off guard. And then she's able to continually keep attacking him. Like he, he does some serious damage to her. Like, um, but she hits him with an Elvis statue then after he throws her through a glass shower door, she attacks him with a hotel shampoo bottle, like just like sprays the shampoo in his eyes. Then this is my favorite. She gets the lid off the top of the toilet tank and she like bangs that over his head. Then she gets him with hairspray and a lighter, the corkscrew again. And finally she gets his gun and she just like goes totally primal on him. She like shoots him and she hits him with the gun and she is just like animalistic. And she's intended to be animalistic in that scene, I guess. And it's just like you see her have this power that you didn't see her have before. You know what I mean? Like that's within her, even though she's so sweet and cute. She also has this power to defend herself and to defend Clarence. And I really admire that scene. I mean, I guess you could call it maybe it could read as exploitative, too, because she's like sitting there with this gun in her bra and her breasts are shaking and kind of sweaty while she's hitting him with the gun. But like to me, I just felt empowered by this scene when I watched it and still do. And by the way, the toilet tank thing, every time I watch a movie now where women are in trouble, if they're near a bathroom, I'm like, just get the toilet tank, get the lid of the toilet tank and hit somebody with it. (laughs) 
And it is in my personal, like, if I ever had to save myself from danger, like toolkit now, I'm like, go to the bathroom with your cell phone. If somebody tries to break in, get the back of the toilet tank ready and hit somebody with that really hard. Because people have actually, I looked this up too, just to make sure it was legit. People have committed murders with toilet tanks. Like it is a dangerous weapon. So I like, that's what I like about this, this scene. I like that finally Alabama is the one who is in power and she's actually behaving way more competently than Clarence when Clarence goes to Drexel's, right? Very like, true. Clarence, yeah. Clarence survives by sheer dumb luck. She yeah. survives, even though this man is much bigger than her by ingenuity, just like constant ingenuity. Yeah. That's my case. That's my case. Okay. So you have convinced me, I think. And I think that I actually, maybe I've even settled this whole thing about, whether this is a romantic scene, because you know what, like that kind of loyalty and loyalty to the project, like whatever mm. it is in a relationship, right? Like a relationship, you're, you're making something together, right? Yeah. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be like a family, you know, romance relationship, but loyalty to the project of a relationship is actually super important to me. And mm. she is doing it. She's doing it even when it might not make sense because that's what her values are. And it's though it is those values. It is her loyalty to the project that empowers her. Mm. So I think I've just like solved that scene and I think I'm into it. Nice. (laughs) And everybody out there, remember the toilet tank lid. Okay. Just like, don't be like those girls in the movie split that are like sitting there with a toilet in their room and they never use it against the serial killer. That's all I got to (laughs) say. That whole movie was ruined for me just because I was like, but the toilet tank lid the whole time. Didn't you, <laughs> didn't you girls see true romance? Come on now. Okay, so um, Clarence finds Alabama in the room with the dead mobster underneath her. She's just like freaking out. He takes her out of the room with the cocaine. Um, she's all bloody and messy. Takes her to the airport to clean her wounds and tells her a story of how he grew up by the airport and he was poor and he always had to watch the planes taking people to places he couldn't afford to go. I guess that was biographical from Tarantino because he used to live by LAX. So Mm. he said it was very important for him that these characters be like what he called minimum wage kids. And I respect that. Yeah. Then he asks Alabama where she would like to go. And she said she'd like to go to Cancun. She says, it sounds like a movie. Clarence and Alabama go to Cancun, which I like because it's pointing out the very movie-like nature like of these characters uh-huh. who are in a movie. <laughs> right. And it's funny that that's the part that sounds like a movie. Like it's not the like cocaine selling, you know, mob movie that we're in. It's like that's mm-hmm. other movie. <laughs> yep. Basically. After this, Elliot, who had asked for a free sample of the, of the Coke for his own use gets caught and the cops kind of harass him and freak him out. And so he agrees to wear a wire to the big meetup at the hotel. So Clarence and Alabama and Dick are back at the house. Dick gets a phone call at the last second. They're like rushing out the door. We find out that he actually got the part on TJ Hooker. And he's like super excited. He's got a 7 a.m. call the next morning. And at this point, Dick becomes like, I don't know, like I need him to be okay at this point. And I honestly did not remember what happened to him. And so like... All of my like hopes for the rest of this movie were like tied up in Dick because I was like, this man needs to make his 7 a.m. call. Like, please let him survive. That's right. He needs to meet Captain Kirk, goddammit. 
And this is like too one of the points in the movie where I realized exactly how selfish Clarence and Alabama are because like they have not told Dick that they're being chased by the mob. They've only told Dick the backstory about the like the bad cop or whatever who like gave him the cocaine, right? Like yeah. you know, yeah, and like Dick could get fucking killed. Like they, Alabama just got beaten up, and they told they tell Dick that she was hit by a basketball. Like they should have just been like, Dick, why don't you stay home? Like, and there's we'll this moment meet. when he hesitates. He gets off the phone, he tells them his news, and he's like, hey, Clarence. And it's like, it's almost like he's going to be like, do I really, you know, can I, I want to prepare for this role. I don't know exactly what he was going to say. Yeah. But, but then he's, he stops himself and he goes out the door. And then I'm just like, oh my gosh, dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just like, really like Clarence and Alabama have, our, they don't know that they've gotten Clarence's dad killed, but they've gotten Clarence's dad killed. And like, now they're maybe going to get dick killed? Like, come on. Yeah, they've Whatever. already, I mean, they've gotten someone, an innocent person killed. They've both committed murders at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in pretty deep. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we come now to the the drug deal, the final showdown. Um, this kind of happens in stages. Like, and we're seeing, the audience knows that this is all about to go down. Like, we know that the mob is coming after them. We know that the cops are coming after them. They do not know. Like... <laughs> They go over to Lee Donowitz's suite. He's got these two beefy looking bodyguard dudes. Um, They're kind of hostile, but Lee Donowitz is like very welcoming. Clarence and him are talking about movies and how Lee's movies are the best. And like, they're like real, like real kind of like, I don't know what, I don't remember how he describes them, but he, he says they're not like geriatric coffee table bullshit is what he says. He says they're like real good cinema, right? Like something like Rio Bravo or Mad Max. Okay. Those are his examples of like what a real movie is. Yeah. They're, they're making the deal with Lee. Like Clarence is talking with him. Elliot's meanwhile, trying to get them on the wire by standing close to them. Um, Bronson Pinja is so funny in this role too. Like he's just so awkward with the wire. He keeps like adjusting it. He's so afraid. Oh yeah. And before this, there's a scene where Clarence confronts Elliot in the elevator, like tries to get him to admit that there's something going wrong with the deal, even though he doesn't suspect him at all, really. Right. Right. Like he pulls a gun on him in the elevator and like, and then Bronson Pinchot is just like crying and like in incredible distress, but he, he doesn't really give away his position like to Clarence, but like he almost does, you know? Yeah. He's definitely talking to the cops. I feel when he's yeah. like, I just want someone to make this stop and come get me, you know? And he's like, yeah. Trying yeah. to get I wish the cops somebody to, would take me away yeah, yeah, to step in here. But yeah. Yeah. And the cops are like, man, this Clarence guy, I like him. He's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's weird. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Actually at this point, I was going to do this later, but I'll bring this in because we don't need to talk about the whole thing. But this is the point, like when the cops start thinking Clarence is cool, this is when Roger Ebert's criticism really comes to me. Okay. So Roger Ebert watched this movie and this is what he said about it on Siskel and Ebert. True romance is like a case study of the inflamed fantasies of violent, stupid, amoral, gun-loving, sexually obsessed teenagers. And on that level, which is admittedly a fairly low level, it is well-made and very entertaining. It tells the kind of story that a lot of teenage boys think they would like to live through before they grow up and begin to develop average intelligence. <laughs> Ouch. Because, like, this right here, this right here, this scene reminds me of it more than anything. Like, a scene where, like, you're so high on the idea of, like, this is what a guy could live through that you think the cops would think you were cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, you've gotten this, like, sexy, like, porn, like, almost porn fantasy-looking girlfriend and then, like, who dresses sexy all the time and, like, you've successfully gotten this cocaine and killed this pimp. 
And now you're so cool that Hollywood producers and like cops think you're awesome too. Well, and then, I mean, yeah. And like, that is kind of what's going on here too, right? Because Alabama passes Clarence the note that says you're so cool. And like, Mm -hmm. that is what she's thinking. She, she says this a little bit later, like that through this whole ending scene, you know, that's scary, right? Like, yeah, she, all she's thinking about is you're so cool. Like, how shallow is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, when I watch this from Ebert, I'm like, yes, he is right. Like, I've always enjoyed watching this movie, and it is fun. And he admits that it's fun, too. Yeah. But, like, if you kind of peel it back a little bit, this is the most immature thing Quentin Tarantino ever wrote. And, I mean, fair play. It was the first thing he ever wrote. He was, like, maybe 25 when he wrote it. Oh, and also, this is interesting, too. Quentin Tarantino apparently had never had a girlfriend at the point that he wrote it, oh is what he gosh. said. Yeah. So like, this is totally like, this is like him kind of in his um, trapped at an adolescent level of thinking about love or like what it would be like if you were on this crime caper, like an idea of the movies. And then Clarence, the character is then simultaneously trapped in that fantasy too. Yeah. Yeah. But it is fun. And I do think that it that's is. Why, why people like it. I mean, I don't think Kurt is like, wow, this is romantic and I want to be like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think it's but I think it to watch. I think it harkens back though to something in in guys though, like when sure. guys are growing up, this is the kind of thing they're taught to emulate. You know what I mean? Sure. And I think maybe my affection for Alabama's clothes and sexiness also harkens back to something that I was taught to emulate when I was young. I think it speaks to us on a kind of a level of the culture we were raised on and yeah. gets to like those little girl and little boy ideas about life, maybe. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that you can outgrow it and and see it see it as like a little bit goofy and a little bit silly and and unrealistic and maybe not as cool as it seems on the surface, but also still think it's fun. Yeah, definitely. And it's better written than like anything like this could ever hope to be. You know what I mean? Like right. fun, fun dialogue, punchy dialogue, interesting, unexpected characters. So there's more going on than just this fantasy. It's like very well crafted as well. So, yeah. Anyway, so Clarence successfully makes the deal. Elliot has gotten it on tape. Clarence goes off to the bathroom, I guess, to talk to Elvis or probably just to pee, actually. No, he goes to the bathroom to pee, but side benefit is Elvis talks to him. (laughs) Elvis is proud of him. Elvis said, I like you, Clarence. Always have, always will. (laughs) You're so cool. He may as well have said. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But meanwhile, while Clarence is in the bathroom, the shit hits the fan. Cops come in. But then the bodyguards of Lee Donowitz hate cops, I guess. And they point their guns, which are much bigger, at the cops. And we have the beginning of what I guess is called... Okay, I'm not trying to be offensive here. I couldn't find out if this is actually supposed to be offensive or what the origins of the term is. But the official term for this type of scene in a movie is a Mexican standoff. I think it harkens back to Westerns where there would be outlaws and like cowboys like shooting at each other or something, but nobody can win because everybody's got guns on each other. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's called the Mexican standoff. And it's the beginning of this because there's just two groups now, um, the bodyguards versus the cops. But then the mafia guys that we always knew were going to come in also come in. And now it's a three-way Mexican standoff. And it's like, oh, shit. (laughs) There, there are scenes like this also in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, which weirdly I did not really think about until it was pointed out to me. It just seems like a natural scene that should happen in these movies. It oh, wasn't like, yeah. oh, he's doing the same thing again. But yeah. he, he does. He does these. In, but this might be the most outrageous one because we have three different groups involved. 
Yeah, I think there's one in Inglorious Bastards too, in like mm, the basement. Yeah, bar. yeah, yeah. There is. You're right. Mm-hmm. Then, like Elliot asks the cop if he can be excused, basically from the gunfight. He's like, "Do you need <laughs> Do you need me anymore? Because I'm just gonna go or whatever." And that's when Lee Donowitz realized Elliot gave him away. And then, like, I don't remember exactly what happens, but yeah, everybody then starts shooting. But I, I find that hilarious. The idea he thinks he can be excused from the gunfight. <laughs> It is hilarious. This doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. But yeah, so there's there's lots of shooting, lots of death, feathers everywhere from like the pillows that they're shooting. It's a gory scene. I mean, no, there's not that much blood in it, but there's like a lot of death. No. Yeah, Alabama and Dick Ritchie are wisely on the floor. Bronson Pinchot's character, Elliot, is not. He gets shot. Lee Donowitz gets shot. Pretty much everybody gets shot. Um, Clarence comes out of the bathroom. He gets shot. He falls to the floor. Alabama army crawls over to where he is still on the floor, at least. Um, Yeah. And you can tell, you can tell about your important priority in this scene. Oh yes. And Dick Ritchie escapes. He gets away. He crawls and then runs out the hallway. And he, in my mind anyway, manages to make it and has a great career as a bad actor. (laughs) Yes. God bless you, Dick Ritchie. We're, We're all rooting for you. Still and, ro- and rooting for Dick and Floyd. I hope that they're yeah. just still roommates, you know, living that family <laughs> life of the 90s, you know. Yeah, like Dick Ritchie gets really successful, but he just keeps Floyd around his apartment anyway. That would be so, that would be sweet. It would. I mean, you know, you got to have someone to remind you about your cleaning products from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real romance of this movie. <laughs> Maybe it is. The bromance between Dick Ritchie and Floyd. Anyway. <laughs> so Alabama is pretty sure Clarence is dead, but then she kind of revives him and she picks him up and carries him out of the hotel where the mobsters are holding people hostage while the cops are trying to get them. So everyone's totally distracted by their mobster cop shit and doesn't notice them walking away, which I think was believable enough. And then we cut to a scene on a beach in Mexico. Okay, this is the one thing I did have a problem with, though. Clarence has got, like, a freaking bandage over his eye, which I guess has been shot out. And does she take him to the hospital at this point? Or does she just drive with him to Mexico? And why is the border guard letting them through? Yeah. So many questions. So many questions. And it doesn't, like, the hole looks like it's in his skull, like, above his eye. You can I guess they do have a suitcase full of money to bribe people with, so there's that. Oh, that's right, because she grabs the suitcase and and her man. In a sort of parallel scene to after she kills the mobster and he grabs her, yeah. And yeah, yeah but they're on the beach in Mexico. Alabama does some more narration. Clarence now has an eye patch, and they have a kid who they have named Elvis. And there's sunset over the ocean. They have driven off into the sunset. Yay. The end. The end. But it was not the original end. In Quentin Tarantino's original ending, Clarence does in fact die. And Alabama takes off with the money. And I don't know if she still has a kid either. But she has the money at any rate. And Quentin Tarantino wasn't like overly upset by this. At first he was upset when he heard that he was going to change the ending. That Tony Scott was going to change it. But then when he heard Tony Scott's reasons that it wasn't just commercial. That he just liked these you know, kids, these characters, and wanted them to survive. And when he saw the movie, he thought, yeah, it worked. It worked for the story that Tony Scott was telling. Mm. Yeah. Which ending would you prefer? Like the one we have, or would you prefer if Clarence had died? 
Uh, well, I like the Clarence dying story in my head. Yeah. Why is that? First of all, I think it's more realistic. I think that, you know, the whole getting shot in the head and, and living, walking out of the hotel, it, it's a little, it's one of the silly moments of the movie. I don't necessarily like their fairy tale love. You know, we, we talked before, like, is their love healthy? Is it real? You know, what, yeah. what really would happen to them if they survived this? I much, I much prefer this idea of like Alabama who was so pure of heart and loyal and thoughtful like I don't know getting getting out like just with a totally free and clear brand new life no ties to any of this just a suitcase of money that appeals to me I guess Alabama can take care of herself man she she got the mobster so yeah maybe she would be better off without him without him but I mean I think my 18 year old self would be have been very upset I think now I can feel more complexly about it and think that maybe she'd be better off on her own. But I think when I was 18 years old, I was like, yeah, they're in love. Yeah. Like, I want them to be together. I want a happy ending. So, yeah. Which yeah. at the time when I was 18, I thought, yeah, these guys are happy. Now I see like his jealousy is a problem, his rash behavior, his willingness to commit violence when it's not strictly necessary. Those are all problems. It's like it's darker than I remembered. You know, there's dark undertones for sure. And maybe Alabama would have been cooler on her own. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't... There's a lot that we don't know about Alabama, too, to be fair. That's true. That's I, true. I think I pick that ending just because I really like complexity of endings and storytelling. And I think that that's just, like, an interesting twist. But maybe it's just because I'm not that romantic of a person. And, you know... Okay. Or you don't need it to be in your movies. I don't like, need I think it to be... Yeah. And, and so um, it's not even that I think, oh... Clarence sucks and I want Alabama away from him. It's just, I I think I just like the complexity of that. Yeah. All right. So um, I guess we're going to then go to our double feature recommendations. We've had, so we've talked about so many things today, so it's time to wrap up. My first double feature recommendations is kind of cheating because it is to watch the trilogy of street fighter movies that they go to see in the movie. Um, if you're a Tarantino fan, just watch them seriously. They're so, they're so much fun. Street Fighter, Return of the Street Fighter, and Sister Street Fighter is the exact triple feature they watch. Um, they're, I think they're all listed as being from 1974, which is weird. Like they all came out the same year, but they're with Sonny Chiba. So make sure you get the ones with Sonny Chiba. Try to get Japanese with subtitles. Don't try to watch dubs. If I can, I will try to put the YouTube links that are on YouTube of these movies. Some of them are kind of admittedly crappy. Like there'll be parts where it'll kind of stall out. And I think they are available on Blu-ray too, but if you can't find them, they're on YouTube. And I would also, watching the Street Fighters, like what is it? The Street Fighters Last Revenge or something is also worth it because it's ridiculously bad and funny, but also has good martial arts in it. So yeah, I would watch the Street Fighter movies, get the Clarence and Alabama date experience. So my first recommendation is Badlands from 1973. Again, I think I recommended this for Heather's. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to do it again because, um, like I said before, the voiceover is really reminiscent. The like whirlwind romance with crime elements is reminiscent. And I even read, I will have to see if I can dig this up for you. I even read that they have similar music, Badlands and mm. True Romance, that there's a little callback uh, with the music there. Interesting. I really want to see this. Yeah, yeah. My second recommendation is pretty obvious. It's uh, Reservoir Dogs from 1992. I just think it's worth it to see the two out of the three first 
uh, Quentin Tarantino screenplays that were true to his vision. Cause apparently natural born killers is just so altered that it's not really the same, but like you could see the first two that came before Pulp Fiction that kind of show his vision and Reservoir Dogs is just a classic of American cinema. Anyway, I think it could be a real inspiration for low budget filmmakers too, of what you can do with just a few, you know, locations, cheap locations and like good dialogue and good actors to be fair. Okay. Nice. So my second recommendation is Easy Rider from 1969. I don't remember if I recommended this one. No, you recommended five easy pieces. So okay. this is new. But this one, it was my, I almost recommended this one from Heather's because of the um, Jack Nicholson, uh, Christian <laughs> Slater thing. I will say Christian Slater does not do like a full on Jack Nicholson impersonation in True Romance, but there are a few moments where you, you know, get that little jack nicholson vibe plus you have dennis hopper so i feel like you go fake fake jack nicholson plus old dennis hopper pair it with real jack nicholson and young dennis hopper and if there's there's like a road movie there's desert scenes it it makes sense to me makes sense it makes sense to me too totally i see where you your vision there yep i like it (laughs) okay my third recommendation is totally different tonally than this movie okay And I'm recommending it solely because it's also a romance and it involves Patricia Arquette. So Patricia Arquette in 1993 also starred in the movie Ethan Frome opposite Liam Neeson. Okay. And it's not really a spoiler to tell you that it has a down ending because like every Edith Wharton book, well, almost every, there are a few that don't, but almost every Edith Wharton book has a down ending. And this is based on the Edith Wharton book. But I think her performance is really beautiful, very different. Liam Neeson is so good in this movie. Joan Allen is in it. Only watch it, I guess, if you like sort of period pieces and like romantic dramas, but I think it's beautifully done. So yeah, I recommend it. Um, My next recommendation is the David Lynch movie from 1990, Wild at Heart. Have you seen this one, Jen? I have not, but I'm curious about it. There's a lot of similarities here. It's got Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern as the main you know, whirlwind romance couple running from crime. Um, There's an Elvis factor. There's like a rockabilly fashion factor. There's like an extreme violence factor. Um, It's David Lynch. So it's weirder. I don't know if I (laughs) like this movie, but you can't, I can't deny that they are similar in a lot of ways that would make a really interesting juxtaposition. Nice. Also another of Kurt's favorites too, if that like seals the deal for you. (laughs) Nice. Okay. Okay. It's a Kurt's favorite double feature. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Okay. And then my final double feature recommendation I've not seen yet, but I'm recommending I watch it myself. I started watching the beginning and I was admittedly already drawn in. Okay. Like I started watching Jailhouse Rock because that's the movie that Clarence keeps talking about how great Elvis was in Jailhouse Rock. I have not yet seen him being mean and surly in the movie, however. So I'm not sure where he's getting that from, but he was looking very attractive. So I can understand better why Clarence says he would fuck Elvis now that I begin watching Jailhouse Rock. I I would ask earlier if you would fuck Elvis. Oh, yeah. Um, I wouldn't go out of my way to fuck Elvis. Put it that way. (laughs) If you if you had me choose between Elvis and a variety of people, I imagine that Elvis would win over many people. But like (laughs) but like he's not I I don't look at him and I'm like, oh, yeah, Elvis. Yeah, you, you no, I, that's a really good way of putting it. <laughs> I wouldn't go out of my way. It, were the opportunity to present itself. It depends on which era of Elvis, too. Like, 70s Elvis, not going to go near. 
Yeah, for me, it's more like it would only be if like somebody was like, you either have to fuck Elvis or you have to fuck this other guy. Like, and like mm. then it would depend on the other guy, right? Like, I'm not like I like I wouldn't like if I met Elvis, I don't think I'd be like, oh yes, like let's have sex. You know what I mean? I'd be like, yeah. like let's just talk. Like, for example, why are you here? For one thing, <laughs> how'd you get here? <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm not gonna say no, but I'm not gonna say yes. <laughs> All right, so um. That aside, um, I started watching Jailhouse Rock and I can see a little better what Clarence sees in Elvis and I'm, I'm going to finish watching it. And I think it would be interesting to watch with the movie just because it's referenced in the movie. I mean, there are a ton of movies referenced in this movie, but like, I think the Jailhouse Rock is a little more central to like, you know, the style and aesthetic that Clarence is going for or that you see in some of the Alabama's costume as well. So, yeah. Mm. And my last choice is No Country for Old Men from mm. 2007. Um, I just, I kept thinking about No Country for Old Men. These, these movies are not tonally similar at all, stylistically similar at all, but there is the whole, like, somebody stumbles upon, like, some, some drug money and, uh, and makes bad choices about it. Yeah. <laughs> drug yep. slash money. Do you see that? Do you see what I'm saying there? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I don't want to, like, and- I don't want to spoil it. I guess that happens pretty early in No Country for And Old a Men. formidable villain as well. So, yeah. 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 Great. All right. So Zoe, thanks so much for coming on yet again. Like I've really enjoyed our discussion today and you made me think about a lot of things. And yeah, same um, here. thank you for cool. having me again. And um, stay tuned in the Gen X rom-com series. The next movie we will be talking about is reality bites and remember to rate review and subscribe to us on Apple podcasts and give us, if you have something to say about this episode, please feel free to reach out on Twitter or Facebook or email us feedback at feedback at every Um, Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye.